What's up, everybody? Another This Is Hardcore podcast coming at you. I gotta tell you, the response last week was absolutely phenomenal. But, I mean, when you bring the big guy on, Mr. Tim Bohr, I knew some of the people from, like, Good Fight, and, you know, just a lot of people really involved in the back end of the music world for the last 20-odd years were gonna come out and take a look at his story. The conversation ran long, and I know I had some people saying, like, you know, that'd be so good if it was a little shorter, but... As I said from the outset of this, you got to go deep. You got to start at the beginning. And it's in these long conversations that we have where we really start feeling comfortable and we're able to just have a full linear idea of what was going on. And I mean, three hours didn't even touch half of what Tim did. So big shout outs to Biggie and everybody from Good Fight, from Paul, even Mike Conroy hit us up. It's awesome that people are relating and getting expired by these people who've been kicking ass for so long. It's why we have these conversations. And something that I really wanted to focus on was on the working class end of the spectrum for hardcore. I mean, yes, we're going to have Scott Vogel and we're going to have all the cool hardcore guys at different times. But the challenge for me isn't having the same repetitive information and, you know, what's the new record. Like, these are the things that, you know, Scott and Freddie and all the guys who do all the cool bands get on podcasts and talk about it. I'm trying to go deeper. I'm trying to get under the hood. And the response that has been so positive has been because we focused on these things. So thank you for supporting the podcast. This is our 16th episode. And another person who, at the very beginning, when I was just daydreaming and thinking in my head about doing the podcast, someone who I reached out to. Rob Ruiner is someone who has a trajectory that starts... So many ways similar to so many people we know, but has a great curve, and I just love his story. And I'll tell you, we did this as we did most of our conversations on Zoom, and he had this big, bright smile the whole time, and it was just awesome. Before we get into it, I wanted to give a couple shout-outs to some people that I love and respect that are kicking ass and making shit happen right now. Just like last episode, when we were talking about Struck Nerve and the record out on Youngblood, I'd like to talk about Carter and his amazing From Within Records. He's got so much cool shit coming out. First of all, I believe by the time this airs, the Mushmouth and Excessive demos will be sold out. But it's pretty badass that here's a kid from the South who loves fucking hardcore so much that he's going back into the archives. He released a Crutch demo that sold out. These are still even available. The Mushmouth 97 demo and the Excessive 4 demo, get them. Super impactful especially for that time, and it's great to see younger ears and people really excited about them. But it's not just about the old stuff with him, and in fact, his LP, One Scene Unity Comp, might be the best hardcore compilation in quite some time. That's out on LP. I got a pre-order of it. I'm fucking so psyched to have it in my house. Upcoming, he has Malice at the Palace. It's a cassette tape called M-A-T-P-A-D. Bob said they're re-recording four songs. Excited to see my boy Bobby Wilson, Boyo Babo. I'm really excited that he's actually doing Malice again. Rob's an amazing dude. It's been a while since we heard some tracks. It's cool they're going back in 2021, the return of. Also, Despise, Demo. It's a sick, heavy band from Scotland. Hopefully, they get to come over here. Maybe Bob will bring them on FYA. Some really badass Scottish bands, and I'm glad to see that Carter has his ears over the pond. It's kind of funny to think about Payback having a discography CD. 
Uh, big shout out to Sauce Keith, Big Jake, and some other guys in the band. LOL. Uh, one of the bands that really impressed me that Bob brought down to Creep Records in 2019 was Warren from Wilkes Bar. One of the hardest vocals for a band from Wilkes Bar, I think, ever. Carter's going to be putting their LP out. It's going to come out early spring. We spoke about this band, MH Chaos from Chicago. Their intro was on plenty of our podcast episodes, and we'll probably have it played more. Carter is going to be releasing the vinyl release, which these guys are going to be in the studio recording. From Within, we'll be handling the vinyl for MH Chaos and Fast Break. We'll be handling the CD and the digital stuff. Really excited to be able to work with Carter. From Within is truly a DIY label that comes from the heart. So psyched that we are able to just tell you guys about it. And it's impressive just to see how much he's been pushing shit out. Also, a big shout out to Plead Your Case. I know Lennon came up in Philly. I'm sure he's going to have a ton of shit coming up in the future. In case you missed it, our former podcast guest, Matty Watkins, owns an apparel and accessories business called Candy Corps. They're currently running a sale on all Halloween-themed items in their shop with $7 face masks and $5 pins. Check it out. You can go see them on their website, Candy Corps. You can also find them on Instagram and on um, Twitter, I believe. For those of you who like the cute shit, the anime pop culture stuff, I mean... If for those of you who listen to episode four, you know what Maddie's all about. To, like, you know, pink brass knuckles, knives and cute shit. She's absolutely fucking incredible. Her story's awesome. And they're running a sale. We love Candy Corpse, so check it out. Also, we're now dealing with the second generation of hardcore people. And when I mean that, I mean people that I grew up with, their children are now in bands. Um, check out Reaching Out. Hardcore, which is a fucking young band who's got some demo tapes out. They're already playing shows. I mean, it's incredible to think about these younger kids coming out to some of their first shows under This Is Hardcore, and now they've got demo tapes out. This is the future of hardcore. Check them out. It's Reaching Out HC. It's a New Jersey hardcore band. Get their demo. Get their t-shirts. Support the next generation of hardcore. I know it's almost Christmas, and there's probably a straight-edge person in your life that could use a little Christmas cheer. So why don't you head all over to xcrucifiedx.com and check out what we've got going on right now. Even for our friends in Europe, you can go over to xcrucifiedx.eu. We just rolled out two different color schemes for these camo hoodies that have popped up. Pretty badass shit. Brought to you by three PA hardcore straight edge dudes. Been around for a long time. Trying to make sure that real deal hardcore straight edge kids get the legit cool gear. Nothing too corny. Nothing that just screams um, MySpace era giant plug idiot core. This is legit hardcore gear for straight edge people. Check it out. Crucified straight edge on Instagram, Twitter. Facebook, and of course the website xcrucifiedx.com. Get some now in time for the holidays. All right, we're talking to Rob Ruinder, a.k.a. Rob Sullivan, who has progressed from being a Baltimore hardcore kid into a MMA fighter who then became a person who is an entrepreneur in two different ways that is attached to the lifestyle that I am now kind of immersed in, being the BJJ. But he's also 
been battling COVID and working through it with his Get Rec Fitness program, which is absolutely fantastic and something that I think a lot of people, because of COVID, should be checking out. So, Rob, thank you for coming on the show. Hey, thank you for having me. I'm excited about this. Now, have you to see where this was going to go. So, <laughs> well, you know, like all things, we always like to start at the beginning. Yeah. Uh, unless I'm mistaken, you you are uh, Baltimore area your whole yeah. life, or yeah, uh, I lived, I grew up in uh, like a little shitty town next to the city. It's about like six miles from the city line. So, uh, you know, like pretty much me, me and Justice from Trapped Under Ice were the two kids from that town. And then like our whole big collection of friends that all kind of like stormed Baltimore at the same time and going to shows and shit. So. What, what was the music that was in your house as you were growing up? So uh, what's funny about that is my parents are DJs. They do, uh, they are, they still are to this day, like karaoke DJs. So they, I, w- I was around all sorts of music. I have an older sister and that was, there was no influence there. There wasn't like uh, a, um, any sort of, uh, hey, check this band out. Like that wasn't happening. I think, I think I had, I took like her Dr. Dre, the chronic at one point. That's about, that's about the best thing I took from her. Um, growing up, like I, I had friends who were in the metal and you know, your, your Pantera and, uh, Slayer and shit like that when I was in middle school. And, and then that's around the same time I discovered, uh, like fat wreck and epitaph punk. And that was most of the stuff uh, I was listening to. Well, I listened to, uh, Chris's episode the other day. Chris Wren, and it it got me thinking about a bunch of stuff he said. But those those early comps that they had, like Hot Topic, that were like Punkorama this and Punkorama that. It was like Punkorama and, and the Fat Records ones. Those is what got what got me into a lot of different bands uh, before I was even going to shows or had a ride to a show or anything like that. Uh, so it kind of started with those, you know, your No Effects and and. Um, and then on the other side, like less than Jake and shit like that, that those were like the bands I liked in middle school. And then slowly got introduced to this harder band that sort of sounded like that or, you know, things of that nature. Now, am I mistaken in believing that you were involved in uh, like martial arts or like a wrestling at an early age too, or no? Did that come yeah. Later? So I juggled, I, I, uh, I actually juggled band practice and, wrestling practice like my first like punk bands like i was in a ska band in high school and i was in a bunch of like bad you know three-piece punk bands four-piece punk bands um and i would juggle band uh like i would get done wrestling practice and then go to band practice and then it, when wrestling became more serious it was i would get done wrestling practice go to band practice and then go back to the gym because i was cutting weight all night so i was like things got more serious and wrestling became like a part of my life that I was actually now good at after six years of doing it and started to click. And I was like, Oh, okay. I actually like this. I always loved the sport, but it actually started, you know, all the time in started paying off. I was trying to always, I was always juggling as many things and that's, you know, my life in general, but even back then it was go to band practice. All right, now I got to go. I got four more pounds to lose. So I got to go fucking run on a treadmill for three hours or whatever. Was your introduction to wrestling to your your family, or did you have already people in the area that were wrestling? Like, what drawn you to do wrestling? It, 
it's kind of weird because my my dad wrestled, but he didn't talk about it. And my and uh, I always make the joke to him that if we met, like if we, you know timeline we met, I would murder him in high school. And he, he's like, <laughs> "Well, yeah, of, of course you would. I had I had to take care of my four brothers, and I had two jobs, and blah blah blah." And he tell I get to hear his sob story every time. Um, it was more or less my no one pushed me to wrestle. I grew up loving pro wrestling. So I was like, well, how, how can I do that? But then when you're five, six and like 130 pounds, you're like, yeah, I'm not really going to be the next like Hulk Hogan. So, um, I, I guess pro wrestling probably is what made me want to wrestle and knowing my dad did it and just like, you know, being, being his son going, well, what did, what did dad do? I want to try that. But, uh, wrestling was one of those things I wish I would have found younger and, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. maybe that would have been cool. But had I started wrestling at six, like some of my other friends or guys I would meet later and some of my teammates, I may have not went into a band. I may have not done all these other things I did with my life. So it's, it's hard to say like, woulda, coulda, is that the thing I should have did, you know? Well, I think that's an interesting, I mean, um, the way you're explaining it to me is like, what are you like 16, 17 or 15, 16 when you're doing this swap between the band and the, uh, the wrestling? Yeah. So probably, I, I probably guess like 14 is when I started juggling the two and was doing like band practice and the bands were a little, you know, as I, I approached like my senior year of high school, obviously the bands were actually playing shows more. I remember my wrestling coach, my wrestling coach went to a show of mine. We played, we played this venue in Baltimore city. And, um, I think it was, it was like Thursday night or something. It's definitely a school night. And he came out and I remember him going like, yeah, you know, kind of giving you that. I don't like your band, but cool. I came type of uh, vibe. And he goes, so, uh, you know, in about a month when the season starts, you're not gonna be able to do this. Right. Like <laughs> giving me shit for how late it was. And I'm like, yes, I know. But, uh, yeah, I always kind of was able to juggle them both, and uh, you know the thought was maybe I'd, I'd wrestle in college, but that op- that opportunity I still had to. I was going to switch to a Division three, and then I decided, yeah, I'll probably just tour because I'd rather do that. And it just wasn't in the cards. I wasn't really. It was more like I didn't want to do school anymore. I just didn't want to have an education anymore. It was more my issue than could I wrestle or could I not wrestle. At the time, at the same time where you were wrestling in, in my timeline, I was uh, my second year of high school. I went back to my local high school and I was on the last championship soccer team that the high school had fielded. At the time, they were like the champions for nine years straight and I was on the last winning team. And I had long hair and I was I feel like super. I, knew that, I feel like I knew you played soccer. Like I remember and you telling me this many years ago. Yes, yeah, so I, I, played, I played high school soccer. And I had the same interaction with my coach where he was kind of like, I don't care what the fuck you do in your time. When you're right. out here, it's my time. Right. Because we were like a legacy team. Like, this is the ninth year we're going to win. And uh, it was always weird because there's a juxtaposition of, I was not a jock person. I was a long hair person. Yeah. Kind of like a, I was kind of like here. a, kind of like a, whatever everybody else in high school was into, I wasn't into. And yet I still love playing. And, and I, now, because of jiu-jitsu and meeting wrestlers and understanding the strength of what a wrestler is, I always make the joke that I need to write letters and apologize to the wrestling team because the hierarchy <laughs> was like football players, soccer right. team, because we were champions and we, yeah, you know, yeah. 
and the wrestlers on our team, our wrestlers at our school were like the lowest hanging fruit. So every despicable slur and just disrespect in the lockers right. are like, you fucking pussies. The minute I saw it's a dangerous game in uh, Pennsylvania wrestling too. <laughs> so now as a now as a forty year old man who was getting crushed yeah. every single time I get on the gym by a wrestler, I just want to continue to apologize to all the wrestlers <laughs> twenty five years ago and say, hey, listen, yeah. I didn't understand that you guys were stronger than us and you guys could kill us, and I'm sorry because <laughs> it's incredible to me just how strong you get as a wrestler. And it and to me, I didn't have a father figure or anybody like drawing me towards wrestling, so I didn't right, understand yeah, yeah. it. But for those listening who are like, why do we dwell on wrestling? It's such a physical commitment that it's hard to understand unless until you physically have yeah. someone who's wrestling grab you and you feel their strength and you're like, it's scary how powerful it is. And you wouldn't think so. So I, I kind of I, I just wanted to address it early because I, I thought that you would uh, wrestle before you began. Yeah, your, uh, I did. Stuff. So I, uh, wrestling was, um, that the, you know, the two, the two roads, it was always banned and wrestling, banned and wrestling. And my, my, uh, my parents always made a joke. My dad specifically that he's like, I'm glad, I'm glad you found wrestling before high school because like, there's no way you would have made it through. Cause the only thing I did was to keep my grades up was to make sure I could wrestle. Cause, uh, even my freshman year, I failed off. I had to go, I couldn't wrestle for the high school. My freshman year, I had to wrestle back in the junior league team that I was with, uh, and had to go to summer school and all that. Cause I went to a, a pretty demanding school, um, a technical high school that, uh, I actually coach at now, but grades wise, uh, it wasn't a school you could fuck around in and coming from the middle schools. I did, I came from like, kind of like, uh, the middle school I went to is, it was pretty much in a shit area. It was mixed, like, um, like, uh, definitely fucking, uh, I can't, can't really describe it without being fucking kind of shitty, but it's not a great school. So when you got, when you got out of that middle school, you more or less, you had these, uh, you could go to your feeder high school, which my mother worked at. So it wasn't going there. And then there was the, the other school, Eastern tech, which is where, uh, where my father actually went to, but they had the be- the better wrestling team in the area. And I was like, well, I have to get in there. So I went there, uh, made it in. You had to apply and stuff like that. I made it in, but the grades wise, I was like, oh, this is like real. Like middle school, I barely had to work. And this is, I have to actually put in effort. So that freshman year was a smack in the face. And I still had all my same shitty friends outside of school and got distracted by this and that and kind of had to get together. And wrestling was always that main motivator because it wasn't something that, you, I wanted taken away from me either. Like it wasn't, you know, it wasn't something like my, my mother could say, well, you're not going to do that. They knew that's what kept me in line. So it was like, that was what was breaking the, you know, this, um, this horse, this, uh, like this dumbass kid who constantly got in trouble and doing stupid shit. Wrestling gave me a focus and gave me a, a way to kind of channel that. And, um, I happened to be on growing up on a junior league team that was really good in the area. And I still, to this day, am close with some of those guys and coach with them and things like that. But, uh, wrestling taught me a lot. It's I've applied most, most of my, most of my work ethic comes from my, the way my father is, the way my parents are. And, and a lot of uh, how wrestling taught me. Uh, and that was like, you know, if you want something, you're going to work for it and you can't stop 
and it has to be your life. Like whatever it is, you need to be fucking absorbed by it. And that's how, you know, I use the same thought, same mentality when we played shows and when it came to being in the band and touring, I was like, well, we have to tour all the time. We have to do this. Well, if we're going to practice, we have to practice every day. We, we had to do, it was the same, like, you know, level that I had to be on for everything. And sometimes you just fucking hate it because of that. But you're like, but that's how you have to do it. And there, I didn't have a middle ground. Touching on what you said, touching on what you just said and exactly what I was getting to. So I'm glad you uh, alliterated that. I find that to be at a young age, specifically with wrestling, I think more so than almost anything else, maybe a boxer or, you know, a high class yeah. martial art, not like a low mall martial art yeah, yeah, is yeah. a kind of instructional dedication that can really bring somebody who is struggling to kind of like fit into the mode of high school and push through. And I have a lot of friends who are really fucking squared away who encountered martial arts and actually a bunch of people who said, if I didn't learn how to push myself and struggle as a kid, as a wrestler, I'd be a complete fuck up as an adult. Yeah. So there's, it seems like there's a high impact from the discipline you need to be a wrestler, which is another reason why I keep touching on this. And um, I know that um, I know that you, uh, your father is a pretty working class guy. What was this? What were what was uh, what was his trade and like what was his impact on you as far as like? So your the work funny ethic? thing is, my father, my father being the person that pushed me to not not push me, he didn't push me at all to be to wrestle. He he knew it was hard, but my father um, he didn't see me wrestle for my whole first season. The first time he ever saw me wrestle, I lost. I remember coming off the mat crying. I'm like seventh grade, like fucking got mauled at like state or like my first time at the state tournament. Just got like fucked up. But, uh, you know, my dad was, uh, my dad was a cop for until two, until 1994. Then he retired and then he went back to being a carpenter and he did the car. He did carpentry work, um, you know, on his off time too, he would do random jobs for people and he would take me with him to hand him nails and shit or find a tool that I wouldn't know the name of. And I get yelled at cause, cause I'm like handing him the wrong thing. But, uh, my dad was a carpenter in trade. And then when he retired, he went back to that. And then in the summers I would work for him. So, you know, I always had, uh, that example of, of the kind of guy that wor works 11 hours, 12 hours, like I'll get home when I'm done this project type thing. And I'm sure, you know, wrestling had an effect on him as well. Uh, cause you don't really have a choice in that sport. It's not a sport that like the, you're, you're about to walk out in front of a whole, you know, fucking arena of people, a whole gymnasium of people and, and possibly get your ass handed to you in front of everybody. And that embarrassment sticks with you. So then in the room, you got to grind and wrestling is one of those things that, uh, the, the only time you ever hear, you hear military people who've wrestled still say that wrestling was harder than boot camp. Uh, and I didn't have that experience, but I've, I believe it. I'm sure uh, a certain level of, of military training can feel, you know, not as hard as fucking a hard wrestling practice, depending on, you know, the type of team you're on. So once you make the switch over to the band mode, what was the what was the atmosphere of the shows that you were playing, and when did you make your first like real push with a band to start playing shows beyond just like dicking around? Yeah, so probably senior year. Now I can drive. I've got a I've got a minivan. I'm loading it up with equipment. Um, we're playing. You know, um, back then 
So senior year, I was meeting the guys and like looking forward. Uh, I know, you know, yeah. some of those guys. Yeah. So we were, we like the bands I started out in, we play with them a lot. And the did you guys playing Glenn Burney. Uh, we did like once or twice. Like we played up in their area more. I saw punishment back in the day, a bunch of times. I saw you guys with bad luck 13 at this like random ass fucking hall up in, uh, um, up in their area, up, up in Hartford County. Uh, but I, I, yeah, I saw you way before, uh, you knew who I was when I was just, uh, Cause I mean, what we're like three years apart. So yeah, cause I have 37. Um, but those are the guys that I first met when I was a teenager and that kind of branched that. Like, so going from, I remember specifically to get to the music thing, like what I listened to, uh, somebody broke into my car and stole like my big ass book of CDs. And those CDs were mostly like everything fat wreck epitaph and, and whoever else had like, you know, I had everything like that and I slowly was getting into different hardcore bands. And so like, uh, the Shia Lude and Bane type era of my life started happening where those are the bands I was getting into and then being introduced to what comes after that. And, you know, and, uh, the looking forward guys were some of the first guys I, I made friends with. And I, I don't know if even I liked, I remember I liked them. And I was into their band, but everyone they were cool with, I was like, this isn't really me. I'm not this, I'm not tough like this in the way you got, like, well, some of your friends are. And uh, the pot, like the, the aesthetic, the thing was like BFF guys. Uh, it wasn't my thing, but I was friends with them and I did shows and coming with uh, the fact that the DJ thing, my parents doing that is their like weekend thing. I always had a PA. Like, so I, and I understood pro audio pretty well. So I was the one that would build sound systems for people's shows or come and set up my own for, for different things. So I sort of fell into place with that accidentally. And then, um, I started doing shows, uh, around my senior year. Cause I got hooked up with different venues and I was doing sound for different shows. And I was like, I can do this. Like, so, you know, I started learning from different promoters in the area and just the kind of that art of selling a show of handing out being like, okay, so what do I do? I hand out flyers at every fucking show that makes sense for these bands. Okay, cool. I can do that. Uh, and then you know, that's how my band can play shows. Okay. Well, I'll show trade with this and then I'll call this band and I want to play with this band. So I'll call this band or I just want to see this band. So I'll call this band. And you know, um, on that crit on the show, with Chris, you, you had that story about, uh, of um of sending letters to different bands and like your some of them calling your mom's house uh fucking the the dude was it stizza the guy from leftover crack had to call called my house once to talk to my mom and my mom was like um robbie because that's what everyone calls me it's like, yeah uh, there, there there's a guy named stizza on the phone and i'm like huh Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, and I'm making, I'm like, I got, I'm walking outside with the phone cord, trying to negotiate like what their, you know, what their guarantee is gonna be at sick mountain, like seventeen. I'm like, oh yeah, I guess that sounds good. You guys need like food or anything? So, uh, that yeah, senior year was when I was like, I want to play shows, and I got, I started college. Was it? So yeah, so nine eleven happened. That happened. Uh. I dropped out of college a few weeks after that 
and I had the right guy, the guys in the band who wanted to tour, and we started trying to do our first East Coast tours in this in the band that would be like the precursor to Ruiner. It was this band called Farewell Hope, and we uh, like we played a bunch. And then slowly some members left and we wrote like one more record. And then one day we're like, kind of that lineup was, was, you know, we have these, all these other songs that don't really fit this. I, we should be a different band. And we, we added like a new guitar player and that's how Ruiner kind of started. But it, the whole goal was always a tour. Like that was just, I, I was like, I wanted to hit the road. Um, what was I was trying to think about this the other day. It was, was it called book book your own fucking life or just book yes it was. That's what it was, right? Fucking life, yep. So I had that, and I would go through it and find different venues, and then I asked my friends um, <clears throat> around the same time that I was graduating high school. I met <clears throat> I meet Mike Riley, who uh, sung for Pulling Teeth, yeah. and he was in um, a band called Looks Like Rain at the time, and I and I started making friends with all those guys. And me and Mike would eventually I'd move in with him <clears throat> and we were, uh, we would do some shows together and I, I helped, um, run the charm city art space. I was one of the members there. So I, w- I was actually going to ask you that in a, in a bit, actually, uh, before we get too far, I want to touch. Yeah, yeah, on I, I'll keep going. So <laughs> no, 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 it was actually great. Cause you really outlined a lot of things that yeah. kind of, um, for me, I, I would like to kind of see when you were at that stage, we were hanging with looking forward. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, you touched on the P uh, the fact that because of your parents at the PA was the access to the information available, or was it just because you were hungry and asking the right questions that it was easy for you to network and start like really grinding. Uh, so the, here's the, here's the funny thing. Look, the looking forward guys, like they weren't really a tour type band. Like no, they, no, no. They were like the band they, from that area. Yeah. They were band, Yeah. I wanted to fucking tour. So like, it didn't matter. I started looking up shit and this was, you know, AOL era internet. So that wasn't really a thing. It was still phone calls. It was emails. Um, I was looking up venues. I mean, I asked them, but they didn't have much. And plus I was, even back then, I I, I was in band, staunchly not fucking Christian bands. Looking forward, kind of lended to that category, and we played some of the shows with them. They did at churches and stuff, and and you know I wouldn't turn a show down when it is, especially if it was bands I was friends with. But we were pretty outspoken about like whether it be agnosticism or atheism. We weren't believers of any of that, so. Uh, we didn't really fit who they knew anyway, but we just wanted to play. And, you know, I emailed all these guys and looked up, uh, you know, book your own. I remember book your own fucking life was like my Bible for a while. I was carrying it around, like look at like, you know, be sitting around in the van or whatever, like, Oh, I should email this guy or whatever, trying to find different States. And it, uh, it, it worked a little bit, you know, you still have the network, you still have the grind. And I would ask friends that toured, if there was a local band in Baltimore that toured, I would hit them up like, Hey, so what was your contact list? That was that, now this just, just jogged my memory. I remember asking other bands who I knew were touring a ton and be like, dude, what's your contact list? I remember how taboo of something that felt like you would think I was asking them how much money they made. Like, you know, Oh man. So like, uh, what's, uh, what are you leaving with at the end of the year? Like they, I remember that was some people acted as if that should be a fucking secret. Like, well, I did all this work. I shouldn't have to give you these contacts. I remember thinking that even back then going, that, that's not how this should work. Like, 
we're like a community, right? Like, I'm not that fucking punk, I guess, but, like, shouldn't we be working together? Like, I will give you what I have, you give me what you have, because it's supposed to be that way. Uh, so, you know, I got different people's contact lists and emailed who I could and played where I could and, and just grinded. And um, I actually really enjoyed that. I remember when that laptop crashed that had all those files on it and I damn near fucking came to tears because I realized I had lost a ton of contacts that I had to, you know, go back through email and email and find them all because my the docu file that I had of it was just gone. I was like, fuck. So what, so what I did early on and something that sticks with me is that I write, if I write something down, I'll remember it. If I write some, a right. telephone number down, I'll remember it. And for me, because I'd started without email, I just had a handwritten list and then it became a giant contact list that was in a binder. And then I would also eventually have a TXT, like notepad, right. everything on one thing. And I would constantly print it out and take with me. Because of exactly what you would say, what you yeah. and, and you touched on that. Uh, if someone came to me, I don't care if I was in Kansas or if I was in New York City. If someone's like, "Hey, uh, we were looking for it," I could literally pull out this right. yeah, binder yeah. immediately and go. Well, and I would start pulling out. I think people thought I was like either like a wizard, like what's a, <laughs> I had this giant trapper keeper book here about to read a spell from for. Yeah, like I'm pulling this fucking thing out, and yeah. it's obviously crazy, and there's tape all over it and right. stickers. And, and, and I remember someone being like, where did you get this? I'm like, I made this. This is yeah. like X amount of, this is X amount, but it was handed down. And, and I said that in, a, in another episode, what I learned was what someone else had learned, partly from Mike Hoods, partly from Chris Spear. And we, we were actually impassioned kind of like to share what we had so more people could work this way. Right. Yeah, and yeah. actually, I, that's a lot how CDC and other bands from our areas, because CDC linked with Dysphoria. It was important, and it, so I agree wholeheartedly what you said. It's it's important that we impart as much of what we know, so people continue. It's and that's like it's a huge part of exactly. And I and I and I re- agree wholeheartedly. We have to share this information, it, and to this day, like if I'm an open source, and I say this, and keeping everything open source, and actually you did that to me in regards to a workout program, and and it, like being open source is like important at times because it gives people the opportunity to push. You know, yeah. so I, yeah, I, yeah. I relate. I relate completely heavily to that. There, there's no reason for. I, I think information should be shared, like in general. Like, and I make that um, shit. Even even when I, I stepped in MMA, it was like that. Like the like I, I never felt like you should hide uh, like a technique or anything when it's uh, same thing with training. Like people go, well, you put a lot of you know you. Uh, I've been okay. So I've been at business workshops where um, usually it's like-minded people, but occasionally someone will talk about not giving out too much and you, you hear both sides of it, but not giving out too much content as a trainer, because it's like, well, uh, you know, you don't you don't want to put too much out there. Other people will take it. Who the fuck cares? It's the fucking internet. Like they're gonna find it anyway, and like barely anything's new. So why? It's the same way back when I played shows, like. I want bands to come to my area. Like I want bands to want to play Baltimore. I wanted bands to play here in the same way. They should want 
uh, fucking anyone to play their fucking area. So it was more or less like get contacts out there, send bands to go play shows, get bands to come play there, find them venues, find places they can play because all it does is help everybody. It's just going to help build, you know, the, the scene or whatever you want to say. Like, um, it's going to help. So it's, I, I've never understood the mentality that this is mine. You know, I don't, I don't want to give these, this information up as if it's, you know, the fucking ring from Lord of the Rings, some shit. Now, let me ask you, because I, I have yet to find someone that could really break it down for me. How much could you speak on the, beginning of charm city and just maybe just go over what it was if you know how it started and like what your presence was there and like how it ran because it's interesting because there's not that many spaces like that overall oh, okay. and so especially I now a, i can speak on a really good chunk i will tell you that the person that will answer this the best is mike riley um mike riley was the very beginning i was one year in after uh when i joined so uh mike Mike Riley and another guy named Mike Wolf are the two that came together with the idea. Um, I know I'm going to miss details here on what venue they were doing, but they both were doing two different venues in Baltimore and they kind of like, you know, had an issue with that venue, had an issue with this venue. We should do something. And they, they wanted to do an art space collective. So they, um, I remember who it was, uh, found the, found the space over on uh, Maryland Avenue which was a mile away from what we would call the Broasis, which is where me and Mike lived for a while. <laughs> and uh, that, that's a whole other thing altogether. And um, so they, they found this old basement space. Uh, they made their zine library. They got a bunch of members involved. Um, I was a kid going to Reptilian Records, the shop, and... I also was known for being a carpenter. People knew I built, I, I could build some shit. I could fix some shit. Um, and there was a dude named Jesse who worked at record, uh, worked at uh, reptilian records. And I had said, I want to be a member. Well, here's the, here's the, the thing. So my, like the town I'm from and the group of kids that I, I grew up with, we definitely were seen as like the, like, like kids from the suburbs like we weren't from the city which was hilarious since none of these guys were they all just like moved there uh we also were like a bunch of white trash kids like we're from a fucking town that sucks and for the most part like we got looked at in a different light and some of that might be my own self-esteem <laughs> still hanging around but we definitely we being with the group and playing with the bands we played with and stuff like that the idea of me being a member they were like really he wants to be a member but it was like, I was into the same stuff. I just played shows with whoever the fuck I would play shows with. Cause, cause like the looking forward guys were not in that group either. And if, if anything, you would say like the art space guys were like, uh, so what was, uh, who was it? Is it like a band like looking forward? Wasn't listening to like tear it up in their fucking van. They weren't listening to like bands like that. Like, and that was what the art space, some of those members were more like weird uh, fucking punk hardcore type stuff and um, not so many beatdown type hardcore, just like different, two different worlds. And I kind of skirted in the middle of that. So when I became a member, I, I was all in. I thought this, this was awesome. Uh, the idea of basement shows to me was so fucking cool. Um, that's, 
you know that's what, what what punk was like that's what i wanted i wanted shitty venues i didn't i didn't like being in bars i wanted all ages venues so um i joined a year in and my first thing was i was like i'm painting this place so i, I painted i remember they uh someone one of the members knew i loved cheesecake and he paid me with a like a giant fucking cheesecake for painting the whole upstairs of the building uh the dynamic there was we had um monthly meetings where we all sat and figured out like uh you know different whatever about the art space the gallery part because that's how we were able to be a nonprofit. so we had art shows in there and then uh all of us were just different promoters and you just you know we had our own little forum and it was like hey i need this date and it would be approved and as long as the bands met criteria Mm -hmm. you know because there was definitely you know we we if you had anything sketchy about you, you weren't fucking playing there. So that, that always, you know, would play in it off and on. But for the most part, we were open doors. Like, uh, you know, we, all sorts of fucking shows came through there. And then, so part, the, the second version of the art space, that was my baby. That was, uh, that was like my, at that point, Mike, uh, with pulling teeth, um, he, he was still involved, but he was at a different part of his life. He, you know, he's older. Um, and we, the garage next door opened. And so we were like, well, we need a bigger space. And you had this giant big garage. And I was like, oh, I, here's the vision. Here's the fucking, I want to rebuild this thing. This is what we're going to fucking do. And what was that? The winter of like, of 09, I think going into 10 yeah i think so it uh i was there fucking it felt like 24 7 for for a couple weeks trying to get this thing together for this the very first show uh the very first show was actually a thing us like ruiner and mindset played it was a benefit show for fisher house for uh this this one kid but it was um uh yeah we had to build a had to rebuild the whole front the redo the wall there, there's a garage door. I, I made, I wanted, it had to stay looking like a garage door. So on the inside interior, I framed out this thick ass wall with a negative space for soundproofing because the landlord was like, do not get rid of the garage door. Cause a permit, you know, cause then you know, the city might come around and be like, Oh, what is that? So I, I had to make everything look like nothing was happening on the inside of this place. Um, uh, and that, yeah, that was my baby, man. Like that place, I put so much fucking time into that. And uh, it, it actually went, as Rona wrapped up, uh, you know, I, I had to kind of step away from there because I just, like, I didn't want to have to constantly think about all the stuff I did. You know, I was actually going to ask you to touch on some of that because it seems so encompassing. So I want to break down a couple things. So, yeah. Uh, Charm City totally. Art Space is a Baltimore now institution. In fact, wow. I remember specifically. It's no, it was like, now it's no more. Now it what I'm no saying more. is, it's an institution that kids talk yeah. about with a lot of fervor. Like, and it's interesting because in this in this era of hardcore, there isn't too many East Coast spots that are unique, uh, uniquely uh, group run, and that's what Rob's explaining. He's explaining that like a group of promoters put the time and effort into hold the space, keep it open. 
and it's really it was a really unique spot. In fact, it was also incredibly hot, even in the wintertime. <laughs> I yeah. came down I came down with horror show on a weekend tour. Right, yeah, yeah. That was and it was so goddamn hot. And I and it was cold. It was not a it was not a winter it was a winter month and it was insanely yeah. cold, but it's fucking hor in it's in the winter hot in there was horrible. Like it was terrible. The first show I saw there was actually what what was it? There's a Philly band a long time ago. It was a Philly band called Knives Out. Yeah, that was like the early 2000s era hardcore, like the yeah same same time, time frame. frame. Yep. Yeah, yeah. So they played with Curl Up and Die. Uh, they're from Nevada or Reno. Or yeah, whatever. yeah, they're uh, they're yeah, they're from Reno. The metal like early convergy botch type stuff. Yeah, I they, had, like, two, they had two they had two singers and all yeah. that. Yep, I remember. It. So I saw them. Um, that was the first show I ever saw there. And I was sold. Like I already wanted to be a member just because I liked the idea of what they were doing. And um, when uh, I saw that show, I was like, holy fuck, this is so awesome. But it's like Mike Riley has in a, uh, his old band, The Spark, had a line. He's like, it's a ba- yeah, it's a basement, stupid. And uh, that was his line about it because people were like, so this is like a basement? Like, why? what? And uh, dude, I can't tell you... <laughs> One really sh- shitty story about the first art space. One, somebody fucked the toilet up. So we didn't have shows. We didn't have anything booked for like a day or two. And I needed to get a new wax ring. I had my normal day job. I pulled the toilet, planned to go back there about a day later. And I got distracted with my own job. And when I went back, the top floor, because there was apartments above it, had backed up badly. So when I got there, the whole basement floor had flooded with, like, about an inch of shit. Like, it was just gelatinous shit the whole way across the floor. So I got to clean that up. I've cleaned up so much shit at the art space, both versions of it, that uh, it haunts my dreams to this day. So. Well, I, I think that's something that needs to be spoken on, not the shit part, but in yeah, general. The I. The idea, the ideology of like, oh, we need our own space. There's so much effort and so much like uh, time that goes in that doesn't get paid out. There's no like, I would work yeah. here, but I need fifteen dollars an hour. There's so much just blood, sweat, toil, and tears out of the love for what you're doing that those kind of spaces are a they're, they're often short lived. There's only Gilman Street and maybe right. one other two space I think ever ABC and, and we were Rio. Modeled- we were modeled heavily after Gilman and like Mr. Roboto. Those were, yeah, that was the other one I was thinking about. One of the, yeah. Cause the other guy, Mike Wolf was from Pittsburgh. So he was part of Roboto early on. Um, I believe, but we, everyone had experience from venues, whether it was working. Like I came from, I had a venue called cafe tattoo that I, uh, I did shows at like looking for in them. Bad Luck 13 played. Is that, that in, like, is that in Bel Air or somewhere around there? Yeah, I remember uh, Bel Air road. You, I bet yeah. I'm almost positive. You've been there. It was, yeah, it was I, I went down to that show with them. Yeah. It was in Baltimore and, uh, I did the sound for bad luck there. Um, uh, and then a, a sworn in a bunch of other, like, see, I always ended up doing a sound like bad luck was one thing. They were fun. I, I, you know, that, that one song, the kids, what is it? Kids of the underground or whatever. Hardest of the heart. Oh yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. The big, that, the big that, that, like none of that was my cup of tea, but those were my, you know, my friends were on these shows. So I did sound for them, but it was like, there was plenty of bands where I, uh, 
I was always doing sound for that. I wasn't, you know, guys were cool, but it wasn't my thing. That wasn't my type of hardcore. It wasn't my, my type of punk, but, um, I did a lot of the stuff at cafe tattoo. And, uh, so that's what they knew me from at the art space, which was like those types of bands. So they were like, well, we can, that was another thing. The art space, that wasn't the place to even fuck to have those shows. So it was like, well, is he going to book shows like that? And I had people at the space who were friends with me. They were like, Rob doesn't actually book those shows. He books, you know, and there was other stuff I did um, that they were like, oh, okay. Like, I just know he's like into that beatdown stuff. And all of them were like, he's actually not, that's not really his thing. Uh, he, you know, he's into this. Because uh, they, you know, you can't really do mashi type bands of the fucking art space at least not the first version they, someone would die but uh, and they tried it so it happened many times but uh uh for the most part the the first art space it meant it meant so much to baltimore uh the people involved uh, there's still the people that the people that i that we were on the board together like the 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 main core group that did most of the things we're all still close uh those those guys like i still like if i run on run into them they're getting a hug like and i'm not a big hugger but they're getting they're getting a hug when i see them uh, and that second version was uh when, when i kind of took the helm on on really trying to design a place and a venue uh one of the best things about like I, it all came to an end but uh mindset got to play the last show the last like hardcore show there was like one show after it but the last big show was mindsets and that meant a lot like that was the last one i went to there and seeing mindset be that band because mindset actually uh, i rebuilt it several times but mindset built the stage there and you know we i remember me and ev being like okay well kids can dive off this but they can't dive so like we're not gonna have to worry about injuries because the ceiling's this high but you know i remember us figuring out the math of where the perfect stage height would be so kids could dive and also us not get sued uh but yeah it uh the art space meant a lot it still does it pops up occasionally i get questions about it and uh yeah like i that was definitely something a big chunk of my life at when it and when I knew I wasn't going to be able to be as involved as I was, I had to really step back because it 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 was kind of one of those things that you I didn't want to wash my hands up entirely because there was still so much of it I built that if something went wrong, I needed to be the guy to fix it. But it was uh, it was one of those things where I just couldn't be in there all the time because it it kind of sucked. Now let me ask you: Did you did you have any idea going into the project because of from CCAS into that one, just how much work it was going to be on your shoulders or were you just so enamored into the scene at a time that you just were like, fuck it. I'm doing it no matter what. That. So I, uh, I definitely have a problem. And I think as I've gotten older now, I accept it. But when I was younger, I was the type of person that took on, took on too much and complained about it and like, Oh, like I would try to, you know, um, I would get, I'd get bent out of shape because nobody else was able to help me, but it was because I, I made it that way. And I maybe did it, you know, not really realizing it, or maybe I, did, I fucking did it on purpose. But for the most part, I have a tendency to be like, I'll just take the fucking whole weight of the world on my shoulders. And then I'm bitching about it. And when it came to the art space, I, I sort of knew I was like, uh, 
I'm about to bite off a whole lot here. And um, there was some, there was also around the same time I was building it, some drama that happened that I don't want to describe, but uh, some shit happened with members unrelated to me. And it caused this stupid division with people not wanting to help when this person was there, not wanting to do shit when this person was there. And I'm just standing there like my fucking hammer in hand. And I'm like, um yeah we've got work to do uh you know mindset guys they came they built the stage uh i had a few members help me build this um platform that was the front entrance when you come in and then the walls and all that stuff but for the most part like i knew it was going to be a shit ton of work and uh i was going to be balancing a lot on my back and a lot of it had to do with the fact that i was the only one that could do it uh, and I did, and a lot of it also was I didn't trust other people to do it, which is another bigger problem that I've had to grow. I've had to kind of grow up out of in life. Well, I was actually going to ask you if, you if there was a specific lessons that you kind of learned that you would apply later on that came from bearing so much of that weight on your shoulders. Yeah. So, uh, I, and back to wrestling, wrestling taught me most of this. I, uh, taught me like I, I definitely got instilled with a good work ethic growing up that I had to, you know, mature into. But wrestling taught me that grind. And um like I was I was a team captain in my like sophomore year because of injuries. I ended up like, you know, almost a three year team captain on my wrestling team. And and that was really uncommon. And it was mainly because like I was the one that had to take on responsibilities when other people didn't do it because I I opted in to do that. Because I said, well, I, I'll fucking do it. Like, um, you know, there's no ball to give me, but give me the ball type thing. And it more or less was because I didn't I uh, didn't want it to get fucked up. Like, I didn't want it to get fouled up. So uh, the art space was similar where I saw the opportunity of, like, the things that needed to be done. And I, you know, I was like, this is the plan. Let's let's do this. And. You know, I, I obviously the other members are all on it saying different things, but when it came to the build, that was that was mostly me. Um, yeah, it, it was tough. But do you think do you think some of the personalities that are driven to those kind of communities? It seems like something that I ran across trying to get punishment booked at certain places and other places, certain venues and other places. A better way to put it, yeah. the mindset you actually start to touch on where. It's a weird um, dichotomy. We love the hardcore scene and the punk scene, and we want to yeah. see it thrive, but we want to absolutely control the specific kind of bands that come right. through. Yep. Okay. So I, I, yeah. So me being, this is a really good point that I think you and me can talk about for a while. So I always tried to be pretty open-minded, even if I didn't like a band. And I was really fucking upfront about it if I didn't like it, but I still was willing to help out with the type of band. And we had we had shows in the old venue, we had to be smarter because it was so fucking small. You know, it was like, fuck, this could be case in point, I remember Death Before Dishonor played the second version. They never were gonna be able to fucking play the first version. That would have been suicide. But uh, you know, the second version that was fine. It was a big a bigger space. Um, we could deal a little bit more with like actual moshing. Um and there were some bands where that was part of the problem. It was so what kind of crowd do they bring? Do they bring a respectful crowd? Because even if the band themselves were totally cool people, the what crowd do they bring? And being in Baltimore, there was many different versions of that. That like, and uh, 
and we had some of those kids too. We had some of those same hard, hard head kids that always got in fights at shows, but, uh, Depending on the band, it was a guarantee they were going to have fights. They were going to have bullshit. And we just didn't want the drama at the venue. Um, where Art Space was located, we were really left alone, but we were also still one block away from Station North where Charles Theater is. So there was the, the wrong type of people hanging around that would report some shit they'd see. Like we had plenty of those people around the corner uh, on the, on right next to us was a gay bar who could give less of a fuck. They didn't care about anything. The fact that none of us got arrested for underage drinking for the ones that did beyond me. Cause like they didn't card any of us. Uh, I mean, granted I was of age, but like you saw kids coming out of there and I'm like, what are you doing? Get the, get the fuck in the, inside. I'm slapping drinks out of their hand. Cause they're morons. But the, you know, even the bar is not checking them out. Uh, but fuck, we, we were talking about the, the type of the dichotomy of, of people. Um, there, it, there was a lot of different types of people. I remember there was, there was a promoter who promoted shows there who did more of like almost commercial pop punk bands, like um, like your Warp Tour type band, but bigger. Not just like not like small stage Warp Tour, but like lots of stuff like that. Things that might be a little more radio radio friendly, and you know, like that would get a little side eye, and some people would get a little nose in the air about shit like that. But whatever, it's. You know, it shows. Well, who who cares? Is is and and some of those. That's the other thing. Some of the um, the overall rule was like, don't deal with bands that have guarantees. But there were promoters that dealt with bands with guarantees. Especially being a guy who was in a touring band, if you had a reasonable guarantee, I would I would try to meet you on it. Like I've been through the ringer. I know what it's like. I'm not going to say, yeah, we don't do that. You don't deserve it. Like if you need a set amount of money, as long as it's within reason and you're not telling me some, some like ridiculous writer, that's a totally different scenario. But you know, some of us definitely had, and I was one of them. If you, if I reached out to your band or your band reached out to me and then the next email said something to the effect of, well, my manager is now going to handle it. I usually was like, cool. Uh, I don't think it's going to work. Like, I don't, I, if I'm not talking to the, the main person, I'm not going to fucking talk to a manager. Well, I think specifically in the punk and the DIY spaces, the hardest part about doing a guarantee is that these places are not backed with cash right. are not yeah. backed with a bank account Yeah, where like a, like a rock club scenario or just a place that has a fiscal profitability at the high point of why it's open. So it's really traditional to say, hey, if you're coming through like a Gilman, you know, there's expenses and then whatever's left was split up amongst the bands. It was pretty, yeah. it was actually pretty awesome the way it was, but it makes sense why guarantees can sometimes be difficult. But if you have a low expenses yeah. overall for a show and, and you don't need the entire room to sell out, it's just basic promoter math. Right. And there's ways to work around it. Like if it's a, a band of, there's plenty of bands where, you know, okay, yeah, you're going to bring that many kids. This is fine. I'll charge what I need to charge to make that work. Uh, and then there's bands where it's like, listen, man, I'll, I'll, we'll do it. We'll do a, de a deal. This is what it's going to be. Uh, if it's a package band, you know, package tour of some kind, we'll work this out. Uh, Cause you just want the show there. So it was always that. I think that's the hardest. I think that's like, as close to the riddle of steel as a promoter gets. How much do I love the band? 
yeah, yeah, and, yeah. And how much am I willing to lose because of how much I love the band? How much I love the band, yeah. Because there's definitely a loyalty thing there where you're like, this is a Tuesday night. Fuck, man. <laughs> like, you know I'm... Uh, yeah, I'll agree. But you know in the back of your head, you're like, I probably should hit the ATM before I get to this show because I'm not going to make it. Now, what do you think overall... Uh, before we get on other things, what do you think overall drove you to have such a wide encompassing idea as like what you were open to support and book versus like the kind of bands that you would play in. Like, how were you able to be open and accepting and also have a, a, like a really refined focus with your own art? I just wanted friends, Joe. I just wanted friends. No, I, uh, (laughs) (laughs) I, I, I think like I, and I don't get me wrong. We all can get that pretentious bug where we all can be like, uh, think this band's better than that band or whatever because i listen to this i'm cooler than you um at some point and then you grow out of it and i think the fact that i felt like i was i was treated differently early on because i was uh you know you just from a town that kind of got this weird look to it that i kind of had to get over that and um i was willing to help whoever and if they were willing to help me even better uh I just know like, and a lot of times like my friends liked those bands. It didn't mean I liked them. I just was like, all right, well, that's cool. I, you know, whatever. And some of the times I didn't even know if I liked it or not liked it. I just, uh, maybe they had a stigma around them that I was unsure of. I'm like, is this going to cause a problem? If it's not going to, if it's not really any drama, then what the fuck do I care? As long as it's not some sketchy shit that I don't support. Cause that's a totally different thing. When the ideologies don't meet, that's different. Um, you know, and that, that, that can play into it quite often, especially in hardcore where they're, that ideology thing can come down to just words people use too fucking often. And it's like, God, why do you have to act like that? I get along with you so well, but then you say this stupid thing you shouldn't fucking say. Um, And that, you know, that's, especially as, you know, PC culture grows and, and we've had all the waves of it. It's going to affect how music and how you can promote. And is this show going to be able to happen? Because this guy said this stupid thing. Um, so I, I guess I kept a pretty open mind and the fact that I came from uh, like one side of the scene in the Baltimore area and, and was working in venues that are the other side, I guess I was able to kind of be a little more open-minded and in that respect than some of my uh, friends, I think. Well, I think that a lot of people get kind of, tunnel vision at times when they're yeah hanging around their friends and everyone's like this is the band so no other idea of a band and i and having booked shows a long time and you know with the fest if the festival or shows that i booked were only the bands that i validate and i think are good right. it would be a much smaller myopic view than the wide opening kind of thing which is what i've always wanted to have Yes, I I always hearing you talk about like, yeah, obviously I booked Bad Luck 13, but that doesn't mean I'm going to, you know, book those kind of bands or, you know, that's not the kind of shit. Yeah. Yeah. But um, a story that I was going to relate back to what you said in regards to, you know, Devil's Honor not being able to play at the first CCS uh, 20 something years ago, Diecast and God forbid, who were bands that were friends of ours, were trying to play the Stalag 13, which is like an underground version of what you're talking about. Yeah. 
and the people who hold the calendar, who do the shows, had said to those guys, we'd love to book your bands. You guys are terrific. But if you guys show up and play, all these guys are going to come out, and they're going to ruin everything. And I took a, I took offense to that because yeah. we were already at the other fucking shows. And that's why I said right. when, when, my, when they came back to me and said, we try to play Philly, but they said if we play there, then you guys are going to show up. I'm like, we're there every fucking weekend. We're there. If, What's the difference? Yeah. We're there if Kid Dynamite's fucking playing. We're there. I mean, I did punch the bass player from the Get Up Kids at Stalag 13, but that's a whole different gimmick. But like, <laughs> we were there at the Get Up Kids, but we were also the ones that were there fighting like whack ass skinheads that showed up when the Bruisers showed up. Like, that was our home too, and so I really liked that you stuck out your neck and said, "Hey, I want to bring some of these bands in because, just like a, not so much along the PC culture, but certain people get in the power structures within these individual independent spaces, and they try to limit the availability of yeah. bands. And all it does is it creates a very small group of people, which in ten is one of the, I mean, one of the tenable reasons why these venues don't have longevity." Because they're they're staying like to think about. I'm a really a mark for Gilman Street. I think it's one of the coolest things. I love the fact that I got to play it. But now they're doing Judge, and now they're doing these amazing bands. Where in another iteration of who was involved with booking, it might not have happened. Yeah, and it's like, how the fuck don't you put Gorilla Biscuits in that room? Like yeah. I knew yeah. I, I almost wanted to fly out just to see Gorilla Biscuits at Gilman. Like you know, like so it's important. Right. I guess it's it's important that you did that and you kept that space wide open because we don't have to all agree on the same stuff. And I and I agree, there's a tenant that we do have a responsibility. Certain things are just completely out. They're not faux pas. Oh, I book right. you, but people get upset. This is what we don't believe in. Right. If you if you assess if you lock into these ideals, we don't want you here. Yeah. We're not going to stand with that. So, I mean, back so back that day, I, I I haven't talked about this band in fucking forever. Um, you remember that band? There's uh, Backhand. Yes. Okay. So that's a band that would 100%. Nope, not going to happen. And I'm not going to argue that. Like I know those guys, and outside of that band, back then, and there was whatever 15, seven, 17 years ago that was. Uh, you know, they even argued about it, and I told them I was like, dude. You guys, your whole gimmick, uh, the, the Pitballs 2000 thing that you guys are doing isn't even that tongue in cheek. It's straight. It just, it's stupid. And like, they're not going to let you in there because you violate X, Y, Z, one, two, three, all these things that they stand against, you make jokes about. So you're not going to be able to ever play there. And they took offense to it. I'm like, you made this choice. This isn't about anything other than you say certain words that you know you're getting a rise out of people and you want to make you want to make light of it well guess what you just can't play there and it was you know it was like that's how this works sorry hate to break it to you uh and they're like well looking forward can play and like we're friends with them like but they're not up there on stage saying the shit you're saying because you think it's funny other people there don't think it's funny uh, and we ran into that and you know and people were young they were they they Thought it was hilarious. So different era. Uh, I doubt that could even happen now. I doubt that people would even like it. Wouldn't even be an argument. They would just understand. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That makes sense. We probably wouldn't be able to play there. But uh, I yeah, definitely, I, I definitely have had similar scenarios where specific bands were catching uh, internet heat, and I had to kind of balance the beam between, hey, I'm friends with you, and and I had a conversation with a couple of these bands where I said, listen, some of the words that you're using. 
I understand why you're using them, but you got to understand our yeah. crowd is much more diverse. Yeah. And you're at alienating and you're also saying to those people, hey, Joe supports this alienation. Yep. And, and I'm a 40 year old man. I'm pretty wide yeah. open. I don't want to be, I don't want to, I, I realize, and I, it took me years to understand this, and I'm glad that you understood it sooner. Hey, my name on your name, my name on a flyer with your band playing my show yeah. means me. I'm an advocate for it. I'm not always an advocate for it. Yeah. And, and, and hey, if that's your gimmick, cool, man. Like, it's never been mine. So uh, let's uh let's change some gears here and talk yeah. about the you you and I, I'm glad that we got to touch on. I really appreciate you dropping back on the, some of the CCS stuff because it's really cool. So the drive is real. You got these extra songs that came from Farewell Hope, and Ruiner is the vehicle of your next insane uh, obsession drive. So how did you get the wheels under, and where did you take it? So we uh, we had. The core members were all together writing songs now, and uh, just that group. The big thing was like, well, whatever we do, we're gonna fucking tour. That was the that was the goal. The end goal was we're going to tour. So it was like we get the first demo, we get the first weekend, or we get the first week. We figure out how to tour on a fucking demo. Like and then it's uh, touring on the first seven inch. And um, Mike Riley had. Uh, Firestarter Records that I helped him out with, and then Great Mistake in Richmond, Alex DiMatessa. Uh, and so they put out the first 7-inch, and we were willing to just go wherever the fuck we possibly could. Um, and we just hit the ground running, and we got you know good responses off that music as I got out there, and we just kept going like it was all right where can we play what can we do and there was no real rules to to it like uh i would have went fucking anywhere <laughs> i think we went to europe pretty early because of that because i saw the opportunity i was like you guys want to go to europe fuck yeah let's do this um and i was just constantly emailing whoever i could email and we had we had tours fall apart broke broke down had to cancel stuff and vans you know explode and things like that and the same shit that most bands go through uh, and we just, you know, kept writing music, trying to figure shit out and got back on the road. And I had put together so many contacts at that point that I was just constantly trying to book the next tour. Um, some of us were living at home still. Most of us were living together. So it was kind of like living cheap at that, that place called the bro Oasis I was talking about. And, uh, so like I was living with Mike Riley one of the dudes from the band, one of the other guys from the band was there and a bunch of band dudes. We all lived in this, um, this big warehouse space that we did shows at and all the bands practiced at. And, you know, we just tried not to be home as much as possible. Uh, and that was pretty much life from 2004 to 2010 was just tour as much as we could and don't look back. Let's fucking never say stop was the line that I always used. And I was like, just keep going. Well, I would like to ask you, where did Ruiner fit in with the traditional Baltimore hardcore world? Yeah. <laughs> like, obviously, I seen I seen a yeah. lot of the old school bands. And, you know, like, whether we talk about Gun Instinct and then, you know, I yeah. never seen that. But, like, Next that was like a band. Too. You know, the Gun Instinct yeah. kind of laid like, the foundation of right. a, yeah, of a, yeah. of a grimier feeling. But then. I've seen next step up. I've seen everything JR has done. Yeah. And obviously you had touched on justice. And so at some point when you hear ruiner, it's such a, 
um, separate entity to kind of add so, to the flavor of what Baltimore hardcore is. We were uh, the band members wise. We were all kind of weird kids anyway. Like uh, metal nerd. Like my best friend, the guitar player, is a fucking metal nerd as they come. Um, the bass player uh, was in a pop punk band, like a three piece, like screeching weasel style pop-up band like we we came up together i i got guys in this band when i was trying to figure out when people were leaving feral hope and we were i was like oh well i need a new bass player but i i dialed i hit the guys up that like i knew toward like i was like dude i want to do this thing for real i want to hit the ground going um and it wasn't so much like we had a style in mind it was just like we were all into punk so it was like how this comes out, we don't. I don't really know. I'm not going to pick a genre and say, "Hey, this is the type of music we're going to play." Uh, it just like, the, okay, this is the type of songs we're writing. All right, cool. Um, and we went from there. The I don't really know what what we fit into because I don't think we really knew. Uh, I guess the you know because the Baltimore the Baltimore sound. The, the next step up, the gut instinct, the stout, that that thing, we definitely weren't part of that. And uh, we weren't really the, the looking forward type vibe. And then we weren't really the DC type bands like uh, that were coming out either. It was just whatever the hell we were. And um, we fit somewhere in the middle because we had Never Enough was a band then. Um, the Spark, those were the bands we played with a lot. Uh, and it was all kind of a mix uh, music wise and all of a sudden a different a different type you know uh like the spark was sort of your tear it up uh cut the shit type band never never enough was a little harder uh so i, I don't know i guess we we're all pretty influenced by that early early 2000s hardcore type stuff like the american nightmares and the hope conspiracy and things like that but i know we didn't really fit there either but that was definitely like where i was uh musically at the time so some of that bled into it but we were definitely just a lot of really different weird people so the music kind of just came from there well actually i think on top of the sound sonically i think that you had some pretty introspective lyrics at that time that kind of not only were introspective but also angrier than some of the stuff that was in that vein yeah and and i and i think that really kind of set you apart early on wasn't just that the sound was different, but I think lyrically you had a deeper approach than just, Oh, I think I'm going to do some cool shit. And yeah. Some- yeah. I, I, I don't know. I guess I def- definitely went through my early twenties, like whatever, whether it be breakups or life stuff with the work and dealing with like uh, some daddy issues, if you will. Like I had kind of fallen out with my father around the time Rune was starting because, uh, I just didn't, I didn't want to work and do things. I dropped out of college and like, he saw the opportunity for me to like get the fuck out of the house and just different things like early on in life and just an angry kid. And like, uh, whether it be a a lack of self-esteem or whatever I was, it just wasn't always happy. And I guess I kind of was able to capture a moment for myself. And I always felt like we had this weird cult following of those types of people that were really into us and it kind of just stuck. And I was always, I, when I met someone who was really into Ruiner, I could, I could pick them out of a lineup. I was like, yeah, it's probably you. Like <laughs> it's always this similar type of person. Uh, Cause it wasn't, it wasn't always, you know, 
everyone. It wasn't usually the kid with the half heart shirt on or anything like that. It was the, the weirder kid. So, um, I don't you guys know. Were darker. You guys were just like not sarcastic, but like legit darker. You know, yeah, like your lyrics. We definitely were sarcastic and, too. Like, so, like it was tongue in cheek on purpose, but it was definitely truthful. Um, yeah, there was definitely a um, a cynicism that g- runs deeper than the let's all fucking hold hands and sing yeah, this song and be yeah. happy together. And you guys, I, think, I will say this: I think Baltimore breeds a chip on the shoulder. We are this middle kid. Like you've got Philly above us, this big fucking city, this powerhouse city that has all these great bands coming out of it. And you got DC that has this, this long standing history of amazing band of amazing punk in general, just fucking punk. Like you can put a hardcore title to it if you want, but you have these and we're in between that and we get very little fucking credit. And, uh, you know, I, I, as much as like, all the the history I have with Justice and all them, I'm so glad that Trapped Under Ice and what Justice has done, like, got this big thing to it, whether it be what you think of when you think of Baltimore now, but I'm glad that someone grabbed a hold of that uh, and actually gets credit coming back here, because I, I feel like, like you said, the, the gut instinct, the next step up type thing like that, that's the sound people think about for Baltimore at one era. And I'm glad there's other bands that kind of carried that to, to be, you know, something else. Cause it, it doesn't need to be that tough thing, but it can be fucking angry and it always needs to be fucking angry in my opinion. But yeah. Well, I kind of, it, it stays in, in line. Like, you know, there's a lineage whether it's just like topics, you know, like you have a dark underside of a city that kind of, you know, whether you've seen the wire, you just can tell, you know, Baltimore is an older, an older mid Atlantic city with a lot of history, but it kind of gets laid to the wayside because you have DC below it and the Philly, as you said. Yeah. And so why I ask you is it it kind of, you know, um, I think some of your suburbs are like, completely like the because I, I pour out like in the middle of nowhere like cornfields right and it's like maryland is either hood it's cornfields oh or yeah it's, or it's basically just a home base for people who don't want to live in northern virginia but are dc yeah. folk right and i think it relates back to you know something that's you know as i would say like it's in the baltimore water but yeah. there's a there's never been a really soft lyrical band from no, Baltimore I, that I'm I don't, and I don't think and I hope there fucking never is. Uh even so there's a band, there's a band from here that that um a punk band RT punk band called Double Dagger who played I always had them on whatever I could. They're huge here. They were uh um one of the dudes still works at Mike uh, they're they're if you saw them they were a three piece band and you saw them without hearing the music you would be like an older version of you would call them certain words. Like I, yeah. I know exactly how you would look at them back in the day, but for the most part, you would write them off. The singer Nolan was a space member. He's a good friend of mine. He did a lot of artwork for us, uh, different things. It's, um, Nolan, Nolan has like a severe stutter when he's having just basic conversation. So at like board meetings and stuff, he would have this stutter when he stepped on the fucking stage, man, it was like Rollins. And he was so angry and he would just like hit with like this perfect amount of sarcasm fuck with everyone in the crowd about, you know, being this art school nerd. 
but being this angry, pissed off dude, he would rip into the politics of the city, how shitty it is, but like, do it with a tongue and do it with like a certain etiquette that uh, I just always remember watching him. And I, I bring that up because of, you know, even with the, you know, your, your old era Baltimore bands or whether it be us, all of them are like it. Like we all have this, like this anger to us, no matter what type of kid we are, where we look at the city we're from and we're like, we should be better than this. We deserve fucking better than this. Like, uh, and Especially if you're if you're white in Baltimore, you can't even fucking act like you you deal with any of the shit that urban culture gets in this fucking city because like we're privileged as fuck. Like, but you, we can see it with our own two eyes that this city has given up on a whole faction of fucking people. And it's uh, you know you grow up around here and you watch that and you watch the city not willing to help itself and just pretty much burn out and it's fucking depressing. And, um, you know, and the suburbs around it aren't any better. Uh, the town I grew up in it, the, where I, where I run my gym now is the same town I grew up in. It's, it's one mile from the high school I went to. And man, I will tell you when I get a kid from around that area who joins my gym, I'm happy as fuck because I'm just like, Hey, I grab them up immediately. If I, if I get a kid from around my way who joins my wrestling team, I am, I'm attached to him because I'm like, you're not going to be like this. You're not going to fucking stop here. You're not going to rot here. You're going to do something more than this goddamn town in this fucking city. Uh, and you know, I'm glad that, uh, that I'm, I'm glad that everything that comes out of here has got some fucking anger to it. Cause it fucking shit. <laughs> well, related to ruiner and your first two, three years, when someone came to me and said, Hey, you have to check out ruiner. The first thing someone would tell me is they played like 300 shows in a year. And I'm like, Oh my fucking God. But in thinking about it, you know, that's how we wanted to be a punishment. We just didn't have yeah. the internet and the ability. And it was for the same reasons that you just touched on, you know, um, I am also have some daddy issues. I've never, you know, like I've imparted some trade stuff for my father, but I have an absolute fucking hatred of him. And I didn't go to his funeral, <laughs> you know, like, yeah. and a lot of my, some of my, a lot of my anger came from that, but I, I, I like also Philadelphia was falling apart. We had no future that we could see and we yeah. were disillusioned young kids. And I wonder if the reason to just get the fuck out of Baltimore was just all, was like alliterated on what you just said. Just like, Hey, I don't want to fucking be here. I want to take this band and just get the fuck away. Yeah. Well, I mean, we, that was definitely part of it at that age. Um, but there was always that feeling, you know, those smokestacks when you're coming into Baltimore and you see that, you see that fucking, you see Baltimore coming down the side of it. Uh, there's always a part of me that warmed up every time I saw it. That I was like, ah, we're home. So it was just, um, I mean, I love the city. I, uh, I still own my house in the city, despite the fact that my wife was able to pull me away to the suburbs because ra raising her stepson was not going to happen in the fucking really shitty area I lived in. Um, but I, I still love this place and I still want the best for it. But I think uh, I've always said that Philadelphia and Baltimore are so fucking similar. Philly is just a bigger version of Baltimore with like some of the same problems. So we have some of the same issues uh, from, from whether it's the crime situation or just the, the type of people it's similar. They're both Harbor cities uh, and Harbor cities always have a similar uh, dynamic going on. Um, I mean, like I've, 
I've went on to work for my father many times, and we get along, we get along now. But there's always those pent up old old shit that comes back up of you know when I was younger of yeah uh, that made me why why I am. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so where the, where the hell did, where the hell did you find out how to get to Southeast Asia? Is what I want to know. Because I remember that was the other thing is someone's like they went to Europe, they went to Southeast, I th- and I'm like. And I know that that was something that was starting to become available because of the internet in the early 2000s and people were going over there. But I kind of want to, I was kind of, and this is something I know that is just a weird thing, but like, I love when people do things that you're like, I try to play Alaska in punishment in right. 2001. That was something I wanted to do. We didn't get to do it. Yeah. Like we tried, but they're like, we're not fucking driving 30 hours. Right. Yeah. <laughs> in Alaska. I, I have, I have one similar to that. Um, Southeast Asia was, we, we uh, knew we wanted to do mainland Asia. We wanted to do China. And then the right promoters were somebody, I, I think that's how it happened. Somebody connected us and was like, if you're going to do this, you know, you could do Southeast Asia. And we're like, uh, yeah. So then that made me go, well, then we're going to go back to fucking Australia if we're going to do that. So this, this like what was going to be for the for hell is empty, what was going to be the big tour went from being like 40 days to like 64 days. And I was like, fuck it. We're just going to make an X of the United States, Canada. Fuck it. We're going to go over here. Um, and we just can't, kept going. Uh, we were home like one day during that point, uh, during one of the crisscrosses of the states. But Southeast Asia was awesome aside from it. It is the one, there was one show where I actually didn't get to play because I got food poisoning to the point that I was pretty much projectile from both ends. And um, we were on tour with a band from Malaysia who like loved Ruiner and, and their dude, their fucking singer and guitar player were like, we'll do all the songs. We'll, we'll, like, the pig show us the set list and, and me and him we, we'll alternate and they fucking did they were able to, they, we played like eight songs. I, I was slunched over on a chair like a, a, a you know bench type chair outside the venue, seeing through the window of the show played while I'm like, if I stand up, I'm going to throw up or shit my pants. So like that that was an inter- interesting experience. But uh, uh, Southeast Asia was amazing. Bugs bugs are gigantic. They're like birds. But uh, uh, the experience. What kind of shows were you playing? Like, because I, I always I, like I booked Worm Rot, and I have some yeah. friends who have been in different bands, and but like. I, my mind, my mind just goes to like, is it all like kick? Uh, is it all like the uh, scene in Kickboxer where like no? Train in it? So here's, <laughs> like, here's that's the like? other thing. We we didn't get to play Thailand because Thailand. I would make the comparison to Thailand of like a New York, and and maybe you experience this. If you play or LA, if you play a city like the big city, and you're not the shit, or you're not the most entertaining thing like going on that night you might as well not fucking go there um and because there's so much to do and travel to get there isn't worth it for every kid so thailand they were like you're not going to make any money don't bother uh i was i want to see thailand i just want to fucking go because at that point i was training so like like i was a few years into back into martial arts as well so i was like i just want to go there this would be fucking awesome um but we, that didn't happen. We went to every other every other city, but but the shows were cool. We played the the show in the Philippines was our first show there, and that one was that was your normal fucking punk show, like your normal fucking like a, a I don't know, a couple hundred kids 
going ape shit in this venue and we played with a i can't remember what they called but we played with a band who was really popular and kids were losing their mind for them and then they lost their minds for us the equipment was fucking terrible i think we played on combo amps the pa cut out i just pretty much yelled uh the whole time but the show was crazy it was it was a really good fucking time and most of the shows over there were awesome we played uh i can't remember who it was but like a um uh there was a metal band we played with that was on like a roadrunner or something like one of the bigger you know metal like bigger but not huge uh metal labels and um we played like a fest ish type thing with them and a bunch of our other hardcore bands and there were 500 fucking kids there and it was hot as hell it was so fucking hot but kids know all the words like they sung along it was it was crazy it was a really good time but how you said about Alaska, uh, I wanted to go, one of my dumb, we're going to do this, was I wanted to go all the way across Canada from, uh, not Halifax, Nova Scotia or anything, but from uh, was it, Ontario, oh no, Quebec, so from Quebec all the way to Vancouver. And have you ever been to Thunder Bay? Yes, I got kicked out of Canada at Thunder Bay. Of course you did. <laughs> Literally taken taken to the fucking border and told get the fuck out and having to drive twenty nine hours home. Like what did what the fuck did you do? Started it started with us playing a show for a whack ass promoter. Um, that Wolf, checks out. Wolf, Wolf Bailey, who is now yeah. super into other stuff. He was uh he was super involved with Shattered Realm at the time, and we were actually touring with Hollow Ground, right? Right, and we had come to Thunder Bay and the promoter, as we were pulling to the venue was yelling and screaming at the fucking venue. And he jumps in our van. He's like, I'm going to take you somewhere else. Now, mind you, this is 2005 and we pull up in front of this like punk space with like the uh, multicolored flag and all this like anti stuff. And we were all looking at each other like this fucking crowd is going to hate us. And then I said, no, 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 this is actually better. No one's coming because he just left the venue we're supposed to play. Yeah, play here. So instead, right. most of Shattered Realm and Hollow Ground got drunk on forties outside of the venue because. And the <laughs> guy left. The guy left us there, and I said to Bailey, "Yo, we got a long drive. Yeah. Why don't we just skip this fucking show and just go, go to the next show?" And I think that the show we were talking about is a different venue or a different place. But because we we just told the guy, hey, this show's not working out. You don't have a venue. No one's going to watch us. Yeah. You don't owe us money. We're just going to go to the next show. When we got to Thunder Bay, we actually were violating the Canada all-ages laws, which meant if you play a show and there's liquor provided, then you're breaking the no permit, uh, no visa needed. Because okay. I get the, if oh, you play, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I get what you're If you play it for people yeah. listening, if you're playing in Canada yeah. and there's liquor then that means yeah. there's a profit and then you have to have a work permit. But yeah. the work around at that time period, which is 15 years ago, was that if you played an all ages venue with no alcohol, then you didn't need to have the work visa. That's how a lot of people toured in Canada, yeah. but it's fucking Thunder Bay, Ontario. We're playing a fucking hockey bar. There's giant TVs with a million sports. There's no one there. There's like townie chicks yeah. and they're serving beer. And outside the venue, three hours later, we're fucking off, getting into trouble in the van. 
and the RCMP rolls up on us and we're like, Oh, don't shoot. And they're like, Oh, you have guns. And they yelled at us. And then we kind of laughed and they made, they put a car in front of us, a car behind us and drove us to the Canadian border. We had to wait all night. And the guy came in with like the most Canadian tuxedo looking outfit. He's like, I'll tell you this right now. If I was here this morning, you you'd be in trouble right now. You're taking good shows from Canadian bands, and we start oh, crying, God. laughing. We're <laughs> oh, fucking crying, laughing. We're like this guy can't oh. fucking. So we got. I've been kicked out of Canada three times, and on this time they said, "Do not, do not think you could go to a Canada border and get in. You are leaving right now." So we got dropped off at the Wisconsin border, somewhere not too far away from Eclore, Wisconsin. And told to drive back to the East Coast, which is actually Fuck. got. And then this gonna. Now here's one. Now here's one. I'm gonna fucking tell you something crazy. This is the weirdest story. I got home. I laid in bed, and two hours later, Nikki Money calls me and says, "Dan Stone's dead." So, had I not been kicked out of Canada and being laying in my bed at home, it would have been so fucking hard to get home. To be a pallbearer at one of my to best do, friends' funerals. That. That, that so I almost wonder if God just kicked us out of Canada. So <laughs> I had to be home for it. And it was a we- and then, like it's the most weird fucking story. But yeah, we got kicked out of Canada That's, at Thunder Bay, Ontario. The our experience wasn't anywhere near as crazy. The show sucked. It was like a basement show, uh, just like typical shitty basement show. Not great. A bunch of townies fucking hammered. Um, the only the, the drive was the weird part. We played, we played in somewhere in Ontario. No, we played in Quebec City. Yeah. No, it doesn't matter. We played in Quebec. I know we played in Quebec. So we played in Quebec, and then we had Thunder Bay, and they were like, "Okay, well, it's sixteen hours there. There's only one stop for gas. You have to make that stop." Type thing. We're like, "Cool." They were like. And then it's 11 hours out of Thunder Bay. And this was just one of those dumb Rob ideas that Ruiner hated where I was like, well, we're going to do this shit. And they're like, really, man? We couldn't find another show? And we couldn't. (laughs) That was the thing. We couldn't find another fucking show. So it wasn't like I wanted to do the drive. It just like, I want to go clean across Canada. And there wasn't anything in another part of Ontario to pick up at the time. So we ended up going all the way there. So the, the drive was the wild part. And the thing that was wild was... We're driving, you get on a stretch of road that is just nothing. And in the middle of it are packs of wolves that are sitting on the median waiting for shit to die. So you're like driving by and a black bear will just get nailed by a fucking semi. And then these wolves just tear it apart on the side of the road. And it's like, oh, this is cool, man. So we're just driving down the road and every, you know, whatever X amount of miles you're seeing wolves just chilling in the middle of the fucking highway like a four lane you know two on each side and uh yeah so there was that um but we the show kind of sucked and the other shows were cool but that uh the thunder bay was a weird ass town but that's kind of what you'd expect from a place that's that that secluded because it's so far away it's closer to i think menace like i think it's closer to minneapolis than it is another canadian city so but yeah it's fucking up there how much of those shows did you play in general that were basement type shows of that in general? Uh, like in that stage good, of Ruiner? Uh, towards the end, that was that was more venues. We did play some house. Like I would say in a week on those big ass tours, like the long, long ass tours, like you know, there'd be two to three 
type basement shows because that's why I pick up in the middle of the week. The middle of the week, I'm always like, all right, just put in a basement. I don't fucking care. Um, or art space, other things. And, you know, going back to the art, uh, Charm City Art Space, that, you know, we had the ties to all those other types of venues like that. So we were playing like weird ass art galleries and types, same, similar punk venues. And kids were like, so when you guys do this, and I'd be, I'd get asked questions about how we ran our space and things like that. Um, I did have the same feeling though with Gilman. Gilman was my, uh, we all, especially like my bass player, you know, growing up is like favorite band was green day. So like for, for Gilman, that was like his Mecca when he finally got to play there. You know, we never got to play CBGBs. That would have been fucking amazing, but that never got to happen. But Gilman was a, a pretty big deal for us to finally play there. Many, when we first started, um, we played there a couple times. We even played there the last time we did, like, was that 2017? We did uh, a little weekend in California, and uh, we played there then. That was, and that was awesome. That was a really interesting show, but it was an awesome show. Well, I find it interesting that the there's a network within a network. Like, yeah. there were DIY spaces. Right. Actually, you're the first person to say that to me. Yeah. But it makes total fucking sense. Of course people running spaces would have access to other spaces. Yeah. And because everybody talks and they're trying to figure out how to, how did they do it successfully? And a lot of it, the way it gets run successfully is you have like-minded people and no shitty landlords. That's the only way it works. Cause if you have a sketchy piece of shit landlord, it won't work forever because eventually someone will see how much money potentially you're making when you're not making any at all. And they're going to be like, there's a ton of kids in here. You guys should be making money. No, we're not. We don't make any money. We make operating costs to keep the doors open. There are, well, keep the lights on rather to keep the PA humming, to make sure the plumbing doesn't fail. Like we aren't making any money. No one's getting fucking paid. We all know that the bands get paid. That's it. And, uh, it's a really hard thing for a landlord to understand that. And I'll say that is a benefit of Baltimore. The having a school like Micah, like the, uh, you know, a fucking major art school in the area bleeds to the areas around it where like you have those types of people that own buildings around here. So they want things like that in their buildings. Like, do they want, you know, fucking beat down hardcore there every fucking day? No, but they, they, they want to see punk shows. They like that sort of thing. And uh, it, it helps. And not, not every city has that. So it makes it very difficult to run those spaces when you don't have landlords who are kind of willing to play the game. Um, so we got lucky there. One of the things I've thought about recently with regards to DIY spaces and something that Bob Wilson and myself has talked about is that there's such a heavily, uh, dependence and reliance on online online sales and things that yeah. are not just cash based in this current hardcore world so i find that running a diy space is going to be so much harder in the 2020s because so many people yep. want the they want a guarantee to get in they want to be able to Whatever. swipe a fucking square yep. and all that becomes taxable um, even yeah. if you, even if unless you have like a 501c or some crazy thing yeah. but even then then you're adding one more layer of bookkeeping and yeah. ta and form keeping just so that way you're not taxed and i i wonder how much i wonder how much that's gonna 
lay heavily Huge. against Huge. new new places like, opening. I think I think definitely. Well, one we had we we didn't have a bunch of like you know fucking ape members who didn't know what they were doing. We 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 operated as a um, as a non for profit because we had guys that were going to do the paperwork and guys that did the, you know, did all the extra work that you have to do if you want to make something like that work. Um, so we got lucky there, but the moving forward, I think about that stuff all the time. I have, I even have members of the gym who play in some bands now who play in different hardcore bands in the area. And they talk about the touring aspect and things like that. And I definitely get that those old man thoughts of like, well, my day, but they, I, what is so easy to them, I don't think they understand. It might actually hurt them. It's like, you know, that if you didn't create the paper trails you guys are creating, like you'd be able to run those spaces. You'd be able to do these things, but you guys don't do that. You're, you're not, you know, you're worried about ticket sales. You're worried about things that who gives a fuck? Like you, you have to go about this a different way. Uh, yeah. Where do you think that um, Ruiner started to be more work than fun for you? Uh, our one drummer left. When we wrote Hell is Empty, our drummer that was in the band um, wanted to start a family. Like he, he was at a point in his life where he got married and he didn't he didn't want to grind the same way we wanted to grind so we picked up a drummer who was really good but didn't fit the mold he wasn't he wasn't honestly he just wasn't as cynical as the rest of us and it made it a little bit more frustrating at times and it wasn't his fault by any means it just was this added new thing we had to deal with so we did all the tours with him for that last record and uh that made it a little harder, but it was also there. So there's, there's a few sticking points. Like I started training a lot. So I was actually, gonna, I was actually going to dig into that a bit. Yeah. So Just where you got that first itch to decide yeah. to start training and getting an MMA that, while that was, doing a that was there a little bit. That was there a little bit, but I definitely still didn't want to fight. Like while okay. Ruiner was going on, I did not have it in my head that I was going to fight. Um, but I, I, I treated, I definitely treated touring like competition. How hard can I push myself? Like I am here was one goal with Ruiner. I did not get, it was a hundred shows in a hundred days. I wanted that so badly. That was my, like my Everest for touring. I wanted to play a hundred shows in a hundred days. Um, and when I presented the idea, <laughs> every member was like, uh, all right, man, like, fuck it. Yeah, let's do this. And as we, we went into a really big tour, one of the members was not, he did, he, he started second guessing if we should do it. And it kind of broke me. Like I had this weird feeling then I was like, oh, we're not, we're not gonna be able to do this. Like, it's not, we're not going to push. And, uh, I think that started to put the seed of doubt in my head that I, I, that this wasn't as fun anymore. And, those final tours they, they were fun but they weren't i don't know it didn't it didn't mean as much at the time and i got a little jaded about stuff i didn't i just kind of felt done uh our last our last year our last thing we technically did before uh calling it was like a european tour 
and that was a fun tour. Like it was, you know, we did really well on it, but I still, I just was like, I don't want to do this anymore. And yeah, it just started to feel like work. I feel like there's a lot of exposure that specifically comes to people like ourselves who are from these mid Atlantic cities that aren't, you know, we're not, we're not from the well-to-do families. So just the, the gift of being able to say, Oh, well, you know, my band played in this far off country and I got this exposure. Could you see yourself in a different light, not having this world experience? And, and, you know, like I, I, for me, so much of what grounded me and actually got me uh, to put my feet too firm, too foot firm into union work was traveling and being like, yeah, this is cool, but this will become a job. And then when I don't have a job, I'm going to go home and I need a fucking real job. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I felt like towards Anna Roner, I was ready to, to actually like, all right, well, I'll get my con because I have gotten one of my I got my contractor license during one of our tours I was studying for. Sorry, I was studying for it. Came home, got that test, so I had that, but I wasn't settled into that idea uh, to just be a you know, sub, you know, do drywall, do whatever. Um, and as it as it kind of progressed, and you know. Rona started feeling like work a little bit. I thought about what I was going to do next. And I was like, I just think I want to calm down. That was a thought I had in my head that I, I just want to take a break for a minute and not really grind. And uh, that's kind of where, you know, tra training started taking over because I, I was kind of lying to myself. And I just was, I was tired of touring was more my problem. I enjoyed playing shows. I enjoyed doing that in a certain degree. Uh, you know, as long as I had some breaks, that was just, I just, I tried to burn it at both ends all the time. And it's what I still do that shit to this day. Like I just go too hard at something until I fucking hate it. And uh, so some of the, the middle, the thing you said about the attitude thing, like, you know, I think people like us go to go to a place like Europe and you get treated like, like you're something fucking special and you don't know how to fucking deal with it. <laughs> the more popular things get, the more you're like, well, I don't deserve this. Leave me alone. I'm a hideous monster. And you don't, you don't really like understand the impact you're having. And I think maybe I felt a little bit of that after Roner the years prior of why we went on to like want to play shows again is like, ah, I guess we were appreciated. And maybe I was a fucking asshole when I was younger in a real way, not just in the tongue cheek way we always made jokes about. And yeah. I think you have yeah. to be an asshole at some point. Yeah. I think you have to have a different, almost antisocial perspective on the world to want to get up and scream at the fucking world every night. And I yeah, think if you're a, if you're a happy go lucky chap who just wants to see the world <laughs> and be happy, right. You're hiding behind a base and you're like, but if you're going to scream, <laughs> you you have to fucking yeah. be yeah. you have to be all in. You have to be yeah. completely committed to fuck everything. And speaking on what you touched about about being just like you know like it, it's it's a beautiful thing to feel appreciated especially and i can relate like I, I was in punishment our band did not link up with anything that sounded like something from philadelphia with the exception of bad Love 13 and slightly later on some bands that would come later and when i was in shattered realm we were one of the few bands in like you know the area that were like that and known for that 
but I would tell these kids that are like happy to talk to me. I'm like, I'm going to go home and pour concrete in three weeks <laughs> and I'm not going home to a fucking yacht and a, and a built in pool going home to, you know, bullshit. And it was actually right. only because of life being bullshit that the tours were worth it. And then once I realized if I make my home life good, the touring isn't yeah. as important. That's, and that's kind of where I, where some things happen with me. Funny, funny. You said that there was a, we had a job. We had just got back from Japan. We went to Japan one time. We got back us and killing the dream. We toured Japan together for two weeks. That was one of the funnest fucking tours ever. Uh, and we get home and me and the guitar player work for my father at the time and we are scraping um, asbestos tile in a firehouse. The house had, house had burned down, but it was block. So pretty much just fries on the inside. So we, we're going to clean the whole, all the block off. Um, and we pretty much has to get all the soot off the floor before we can. Uh, I can't remember what, what we were going to do with it. But I don't. I, now, we were scraping tile. So we're scraping up asbestos tile. And Danny looks at me and goes, we were in fucking Japan yesterday. And then just keeps scraping because he's, so, he's so fucking depressed at what we're doing at current moment and the, and the fun we just had. And like what you said, and, and, you know, jump ahead a bunch of years later in touring where I stopped having that feeling because I was coming home and I was training and I was enjoying my life at home. And I was kind of like, uh, do I want to go out again? I mean, I do, but like, I kind of don't. I definitely don't want to go out for a really long time. And then there's that part of me that's like, but that's what we did. And that was kind of where I started having the issue is like, uh, we're not going to tour as hard as we used to. I don't know if I want to do this anymore. Cause that's what we are like that. We were the band that toured really fucking hard. Oh shit. I don't know. if I don't know if I like this new identity. And that was something, uh, you know, I, I guess I had to fucking deal with. Well, it's hard to overlay the commitment that the band takes and to keep the legacy of the band. Yeah. In fact, uh, three years back, a friend of mine had asked us to come out and play. And I was like, we don't even have a proper lineup right now. And she said, well, we'll you know, we'll get you the rest of your band. We really just want you guys to come and play. So me and Tony, uh, and I, I'm a committed to do in Shattered Realm because it pisses off the ex-members. So <laughs> it, it's, yeah, I like to, when someone talks shit about me, I prefer to piss them off by being as childish as possible. So I'm on a high rise job in downtown Philadelphia on a swing that on a 50 stories and we're patching concrete one day. I take, I take off to get on a plane to play in Leeds. I hang out for the weekend. I get home at Sunday night at 6am. I'm back on that fucking swing. Yeah. And my dude's like, Hey, you psyched to be back. And I'm like, I don't know if I'm really happy to be back into my home life or if it's surreal that like literally that 24 hours ago. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and I, and I, and I have the same resolution that you do. Like there, there are some things that we do good because we go all in. And I don't yeah. think that when we don't go all in that we don't get the same results. So I, I completely right. relate to what you're saying. It doesn't feel the same anymore. And that was kind of the way I felt about it. So you, God, were you also, being driven by that crazy wrestler drive that like yeah when you, that's started, that's... When, you when you started training physically beyond the band yeah when you started to say like you know i am capable of going in that ring like what drove you to get so in that, that ring so the, yeah so that 
so I was coming home and what happened is like 2006, some of the kids around, like it was hardcore kids that started doing jujitsu and, um, you know, they knew I wrestled and were like, and I still, I still fucked around on the mat when I could. I, I didn't wrestle as actively as I'd like by any means for a few years there. But, uh, when I could get in and mix it up with somebody, I would. And, um, they, I had friends who were like talking about their first MMA fights at amateurs and they're like, I just need someone to try to take me down. And I'm like, all right, cool. And so I started in jujitsu in like 2006 and then I was like six months and everyone went back on tour. And then I came back to it in like 2008 and then I tore my meniscus on tour. I fucking, there used to be the, uh, the, um, uh, what is it? This is for you. Yeah, this is for you fest in Florida. And we would play that like every, uh, that little stretch right after Christmas to New Year's, we'd play down there. So we did that like three or four years in a row. And I fucking being dumb, slipped on stage and drove my bell and hit the floor. And what I didn't realize was why I had like slightly tore my meniscus. And then in Miami, after a show, New Year's Eve that year, I, it was like 2008, or yeah, I think two, 2008, <clears throat> I step off a curb and pop, my fucking meniscus snaps, and I'm, I or tears, tears rather. I tear my ACL many years later, but uh, yeah, meniscus um, tears, so I do that whole tour, I get, I get kind of out of shape. I see fucking pictures from that year, and I'm like, God, that was like the fattest I've ever been. And for me, a person who's like super lean all the time, or at least like uh, <clears throat> keep, I keep in pretty good shape, I was not happy with the way I looked. Um, so I, I healed up, got heavy back into training, phys- and uh, I also around then, I... I realized I wasn't like moving on stage very much because of my knee and I just didn't like the way we performed. So I started running like every fucking morning of tour. I would run, I would run like two miles, do a bunch of body weight exercises on like trees. I carried this rope with me on tour to like throw up on a branch and uh, do different things. Um, so, and then I came home and I was doing jujitsu all the time and started boxing and you know, the thought, people kept asking me if i wanted to fight and i was like well, I, no no I'm, I'm i'm doing this like i got the band whatever uh and then the band ended and i still was like no i'm just gonna be just gonna live like a normal life like I, i'm just gonna work i'm gonna make money i'm not gonna worry about this and then i don't know when it was the Rona broke up October of 2010 and I had my first fight by March, 2011. And yeah. Well, and it you, was just When you got to that point, what drove, what, what, what was the, uh, the transition? Cause I, I, as I understand it, it's harder if you have a BJJ black belt to transition into amateur fighting than just training and getting on a card. Right. Yeah. So I had, you know, jujitsu wise, I was a fucking white belt. And I was a, a pretty good wrestler. I didn't have wrestling in college, but the one benefit I have wrestling wise is I'm a very good defensive wrestler. By that, I mean, it's extremely hard to get me down. And uh, it, it's always been my bread and butter. I guess I was low center of gravity, whatever. Uh, in 19 fights, I was taken out one time and that was another college wrestler. And wow. he had me down for a half a second. Like I don't, I don't go down very well. So uh going 
fighting wise, I was just like, uh, I want to fight. And in Virginia, it was full rules amateur. If you wanted to fight, uh, and as I had training partners, the, the deal was if you want, if you want to do this for real, then you fought in Virginia at least once. Because if you didn't fight Virginia, you didn't know what it was really going to feel like to have a shin crack you in the fucking head or any of those things. So you always wanted to fight in Virginia. And there was a, um, a organization called Barbarian Fight Club. It was in a 4-H like hangar. Like, you know, there'd be fucking cow show in there during the weekend. All the locals would be taking bets out on guys. And my first fight, I knocked the kid out in 12 seconds. And I was like... Oh, this is this is that easy? I can do that? I can just fucking punch people? Because, you know, this fucking wrestler who barely knew how to box at the time, I was like, I'll I'll just do that from now on. And I never did that again. But, uh, yeah, that's when I fell in love with it. And I didn't know what I was going to do, if I was going to keep fighting. I didn't know how serious I would take it. But pretty much after that first fight, it was, all right, well, I'm in. This is going to be real life now. And I still had actually after that first fight, I still had money from the last ruiner show money. I saved money from work. Cause I wasn't torn. And I, um, looked up gyms in Holland because I did. That was the thing. I didn't want to go to Thailand because of my experience in Southeast Asia. I was like, fuck, it's hot there. They got giant bugs and the Dutch have a little bit more, uh, the, the Dutch style kickboxing translates to MMA just a little better. Yeah, um, I've actually seen people write about that recently where yeah. people travel with these expense packages to train at like uh, Muay Thai places in Thailand. Yeah. But they're saying that the technique translates better to modern MMA, American MMA, a lot easier from the Holland style. It, well, the, the Dutch style is boxing heavy. So like the, the, the foot, also the stance is a little, it isn't as square as uh, the traditional Thai stance. There isn't like the foot pumping and the, it's, it's just different. So over there, boxing being heavier, you also have the other big thing over there is you still have big judo players and you still have some freestyle wrestler guys mixed into the mix. So um, in the, I, I went on some message boards and I asked, uh, Hey, I'm an amateur MMA fighter. I want to learn how to kickbox and I want to go all in on kickboxing. I don't want to go to an MMA gym in Holland because Mike's and a few of the other big ones do both. I want to go all in. So try, you know, try by fire here. And everyone said, you should go to kickboxing Arnhem. It's a small town. You'll save a lot of money because it's not in uh, Amsterdam. And, uh, and then there's one guy who is a Lloyd Irvin guy. He hits me up and he goes, Hey, um, you're in Maryland. Do you know Lloyd? I'm like, no, the different affiliation. He goes, well, uh, I have a friend who manages a bar and he has a room. Uh, it's, there's no bathroom, but you can share his bathroom. And for whatever it was, it was like 150 Euro. You can, uh, uh you can stay there. And then I've talked to Fred, Fred Royer, who, run, who runs Kickboxing Arm, and, and he'll talk to you about money and stuff, and I think he can make a deal with you you save some money. I, I spent, I lived there for a little over a month. I trained six days a week. Uh, Fred gave me a ton of private lessons. I got the shit beat out of me. I had a broken nose after the first week. Um, I had, 
I, I had a, some some of the best sparring I've ever had was there. And I didn't know what the fuck I was. I, I knew what the fuck I was doing, but I wasn't good at it. And I learned so much in that month. Uh, by the end of it, I helped them move gyms because he said that the gym, the way it works over there, you can get like government funding pretty easily for doing things like that, for running like youth centers. So they were moving to a larger space, the very, just out of chance luck, the very last week I was there, the last three days they were going to move. And I told them, and they, you know, I was like, I'm pretty handy with tools. You need help. And they're like, oh, uh, we, you do have tools? I'm like, no, I don't have tools with me. <laughs> if you have tools, I'll help you take some shit apart. So I disassembled their whole fucking ring. Uh, I did a bunch of other shit. He didn't charge me for any of my privates. At the end of it, he, lo he loaned me a cruiser bike to get to and from practice every day because I would ride a mile and it's up a hill. So I'd ride a mile up on a cruiser, like your fucking beach cruiser type bike, heavy as hell, uh, train every day and, and, and go back and just hang out. Some nights I was definitely drinking to fall asleep because my legs hurt so fucking bad from leg kicks. Uh, and then the days I could, I would just run in the morning. But uh, that, that experience taught me a lot about myself, even more so than, than the same level as wrestling of uh, what I could take. And uh, I had two more amateur fights after that, won both of them, won a, a, a title in Maryland, and then was like, okay, well, I'm at the time I was 28. And I was like, I ain't getting any younger. If I'm going to take this seriously, I'm going to go pro and fuck it. I'll learn on the job. And, you know, I won my first one, lost my second one, won and kind of flip-flopped here and there for a bit. Got a good stretch going before I blew my knee out. But I, uh, yeah, it was, uh, and I don't regret any of it. I don't think I should have stayed amateur longer, especially with my age. It sucks. Amateur MMA is not like amateur boxing. You can have a hundred in amateur kickboxing. You can have a hundred fucking fights in those sports and your body isn't as broken. But if you got... 10 plus amateur fights mma your body is going to be fucking hurting and i wasn't getting younger so that was kind of how that all started in the same <laughs> regard how you treat it going into booking bands and yeah uh, taking your band on the road did you apply any of that to how you networked within the mma and jiu-jitsu world the thousand percent there yeah a thousand percent i uh I traveled a ton. Dude, I used to drive to Philadelphia three times a week to train. because a balance uh, in uh, Fishtown? Because of balance. Uh, so the, yeah, how did you, why don't you tell me how you linked up with balance? So Baltimore BJJ is a balance gym. So we, I just happened to walk into the balance gym in Baltimore. Uh, that's where my friends were. And um, when my, now the guy, my black belt, Lee Sankowski, he was a purple belt when he opened his gym because he had left another lineage and linked up with balance. So every time we wanted to be promoted, Phil or Rick would come down. It was usually Phil. And then, you know, years later, Lee, Lee would get his black belt. And uh, so we, we would still travel up there and I would go to the old main balance, the one that was on the second floor. That was a, uh, uh, Central City, the central one. Yeah. Yeah, right by the I, I haven't, right I haven't been in Fishtown. I've driven by it. I haven't been in it. But uh yeah, we would go we would go there for sparring on Sundays and then I would train at Martinez MMA, which is over there off of uh That's us. Uh, Tag team. Yeah, that's a great job. So, 
Yeah, 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 because he joined you guys. I remember that. Yeah. yeah. So fantastic Will, gym, fantastic yeah. training. I fucking love Will. So I used to go to train with Will and his guys three times a week. Uh, because like for jujitsu, Baltimore BJJ is great. Like we have a great black belt. So I, uh, I love my gym, but when it came time for fighting, I needed, I wanted to go where better guys were and all the balance guys were able to go to fight factory where Eddie Alvarez and like yep. Zach Mikulski was. So I, and I knew Zach, Zach was the Bellator champ at the time. He didn't know me from Adam. And I'm like, I'll fuck it. I'm going there. Who can get me in? So it was the same thing. Like need this guy to go here, to go here. And I, I, I've always treated the same way. You net, network the same way. Okay. Well, I need this. I'm going to email this guy. I need this. I'll email this guy. I did the same to find a gym in Holland. I got on a fucking message board and asked and just was willing to go somewhere by myself. Um, and hey, dude, the Holland thing where, where that could have went bad for me is that's a, that's a mixed room because Dutch kickboxing is is dominantly the Dutch and Moroccans and Moroccans don't really like Americans. So like that could have got kind of fucking weird for me if I was a different type of person because you're immediately like, oh, no, you're the devil. Like, get the fuck out of here if you're American. So I had I definitely had a little bit of some weird sparring sessions where guys way better than me could have fucking put it to me and were like pretty much talked down by other members like, hey, stop it. Like knowing that they could have fucking broke me. And uh, I had had to like really earn their fucking respect when we trained because they could put it to me bad. Uh, For the most part, I was I was treated I was treated well. I was there, but I had a few guys where I'm like, fuck, man, what did I do to you? It's just like you're American. Like, oh, cool. Well, that makes sense. I understand. <laughs> Thinking on the beginning of you doing the same thing you did for hardcore, where you're traveling up the Philly and training, right. you're meeting people. Um, it's always interesting to see the parallels. Like, oh yeah, I did this in hardcore. This makes right. sense. Yeah, it's and, and that, that's what it was. I uh, I reached out. I had to. I mean, I'm not. I'm not really like a like an introverted person who's not. I don't want to go up and, and be friends with everybody, but if I need something, I'm not, I'm not afraid to ask for it. And I parkour, you know, that networking taught me a lot. So it's like, okay, well I need to get better. There's better guys here. I want to go train with them. Okay. And a lot of times those guys need that. That's the thing that the funny part, like especially the East coast gyms, we don't have fucking super gyms where there's 12 champions in them and things like that. Like everyone needs training partners and they're looking for bodies too. And it might just be at the time you might be the meat for somebody, but you're going to get work and it's going to help you. Um, and fight. Yeah. Fight factory was one of the first gyms I got to go to in Philly, uh, outside of balance. And then I would just do my time there. And then oh, when fight factory closed, we were all at wills, and I was going to and from there. And, uh, yeah, it was just, that was, that was kind of the way it went until I had a few really good training partners down here at, at a gym called method MMA. That was about 40 minutes from my main gym. And I would bounce back and forth between the two. And it was just, you know, consistent like that until about 2015. And then my knee blew. And after that, uh, training style changed and I had to kind of rethink some things, I didn't travel as much, but I had to bring it home. 
Can you walk me through the difference or the similarities from when you're sitting there, it's the day of, you got a fight coming versus it's the day of, you got a big show you're going to play show? or a big show you're like, yeah, like, is, like run me, run yeah, me yeah, down yeah, whether, whether the similarities the funny, are there, the stress the is there. Question. Yeah. So I, this is, this is funny. Cause I don't, I guess I've never really truly thought of this that much of a fight. There's nerves galore. I'm quiet. I'm uh, in my own head. I'm going through the same cycle. Probably every fighter goes through of like, I got this. I'm the shit. I'm a piece of shit. I'm a fucking lose. I got this. I'm great. I fucking suck. Did I do enough? Yeah, I did enough. Like, and you're going through all this shit in your head. Um, and I'm ner- I've got a, ner- a ton of nerves and a lot of angst and I'm trying to keep it bottled up to not burn myself out. Uh, and I'm trying not to think about anything else while trying not to overthink about what I have to do as in fighting, uh, that one, I mean, uh, playing shows, I, I, at the end of the day, there's also like an entertainment factor to all this that I really truly do love. And I, with playing shows, I, I guess I got, especially towards the end of Ruiner, I got a smoothness to it. And I still, I still feel like I have that when I step on stage now. Like I feel real comfortable in that environment, and I still, like, I don't have nerves about it. I can kind of like, you know, snap to pretty quickly and like, all right, it's time to do this shit. Um, and I, it, it's, it's different. It's definitely different. They are two very different monsters. Um, the walk. I will say this: the walk to the cage and the walk onto a stage are real similar. The nerves, I will say that's similar. The difference is when I step on stage and start screaming at shit, there isn't a human being that's about to punch me in the mouth. So, I mean, there is there is that difference. Sometimes there is. I've been punched many fucking times when we play, but it ain't the same. Uh, uh, yeah, it's it's the entertainment factor is there. Like that sort of ego trip that we all go through in those environments. But it's it doesn't exactly run perfectly parallel. When you think about the fighting that you did in general, were you more scared not to get hurt, but to fail yourself? Fail, fail myself. I, uh, I never gave a fuck about getting hurt. I got, I mean, I have so many goddamn scars and injuries that being hurt doesn't bother me. Being hurt bothers people around me which bothers, which that bothers me. Uh, it's, that's a tough dynamic is hearing your loved ones, your, you know, fucking wife, girlfriend, your mother have to deal with your injuries that gets in your head. And it's a weird thing that you do not fucking think about when you go into fighting that as you, uh, you mature, you start to kind of take in and it sort of becomes, um, it almost becomes toxic because you're constantly worrying about what other people think about your well-being and you don't want them to, and you wish they fucking would because then it's in the back of your head. Uh, but my own, my own shit, I never really cared about getting hurt. I got hurt plenty. Uh, it was more failure and that the nerves of failure. Um, cause I definitely took some punches and went, Oh, this is going to suck. But it was more, you know, like, Oh, this is what I signed up for. I never really cared about it. 
with regard to Mike Tyson's uh, very often quoted, everybody has a plan until they get punched in the face. Did that ever come into play in any matches that you had? Yeah, you saw it. So, uh, well, see, I was, was, was going to bring that up next. Dude, yeah, actually, that here's what happened in that fight. I was geared up. I felt I felt good. I felt really good about that. My weight cut, everything was good. And uh, is it Anthony Terrell? Yeah, he. When I got in, I was like, "Man, this guy's big." That was my first thought. I wasn't like really spooked or anything. I was just like, "That guy's big," um, and he was quick. And the first first shot I took. I hit the cage because he got out of the way. And I went, oh, he's very fast. And there was a fucking straight cross to my body that I went, if that hits my fucking face, it is going to suck. Because I remember he caught this straight cross straight to my ab- my abdomen. And it kind of like, I tightened up, but I went, hmm, that was a pretty tough foot punch. And uh, I, it, it definitely got me moving slower. Cause I started really trying to hone in on what he was doing. And I stopped thinking about what I needed to do, which was close the fucking distance and get rid of that problem. Uh, and instead I let him, I stayed out on the outside at leg length and let him fucking dial up switch kicks on my face. And I kept blocking him, thinking I could time one. And I was way off on my timing. Uh, that, that was definitely one of those moments. So I was like, Oh, this is good. My plan just went out the fucking window. Uh, and that, that was something when I went up, I went up a weight class after my knee injury that I wish, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. That was one of those, like, I wish I would have not done that, but I, I was a big weight cutter. I cut a lot of weight and, um, it, it chewed my health up quite a bit. It probably, uh, I think I probably, I probably am smarter and have a better handle on that type of stuff now than I did back then. And, uh, I wish I would have stayed at one thirty five, but it is what it is. Can't really change that now. Did you have balance uh, MMA type people in your corner? Who did you get in your corner? And like, how did you figure all that out? Like who would be your better corner, man? Like how did you approach? Yes. All that? So that's important. That, that shit's important. Um, well, CFFC, that was something that meant a ton to me. Phil and Rick were there. I did not ask them to do anything, but when we lined up at the door, I turn around and those two were like patting me on the shoulders. Like, all right, man, we got to do this. And that, that like meant so much to me because they knew me like I came up and trained with them quite a bit, but I hadn't in years. And, uh, just the affiliation factor, you know, they were in my corner. I mean, my manager was based out of Philadelphia too, um, until he passed away not that long ago. He, he managed Sorry, about that. Yeah. Will as well. He, uh, took his own life living in Vegas, but he, he was from Jimmy Benz. He was a balanced guy. He's a, he was a good man, but he had some demons, but he managed me and, uh, a bunch, a bunch of people in the Philly area. Uh, but that, uh, the corner thing, it was funny. Cause sometimes I had corners that I had coaches that didn't work well together and I knew it. And I had other coaches that worked great together because they could take, they could put their ego aside and let the other guy talk when he needed to. And it all, it was all different. Uh, my boxing coach is one of my favorite corners, but he does not work well with a lot of people. But I, I had true West Baltimore, like uh, Ishmael Arvin. I love that man, but he was hood as fuck. And there were times where things just like he's yelling over everybody. Uh, one of one of my fights, the first time I ever I ever got knocked out. I uh, my fourth, whatever the fuck it was, I was like. 
I was in there. I fought an up-and-coming kid from this area who's fought on the contender a few times. Real good. And uh, he caught me. He caught me solid, and I was out. A good elbow put me out, and uh, he he got my back. He was choking me, and I went out. So they they called the fight, and they rolled me off, and I'm laying there, fucking bleeding everywhere, and and Arvin hops over the uh, the doctors, pushes uh pushes one of the um, the direct athletic directors out of the way, and. And they're like, what are you doing? And he goes, Joe, my boy's going to fucking choke. And he reaches over and pulls my mouth guard out of my mouth because he's, so, because he's seen guys choke on their mouth guards when they're unconscious on their back. So he, like, pushes fucking doctors and athletic directors out of the way because they hadn't done that for me. And he's like, yo, he's going to fucking choke. Get the fuck out of the way. And, uh, yeah. So that, that was a fun experience. I loved having him in my corner, but he did not always work with other corners. <laughs> um, I had, uh, most of the time I had my main training partner, uh, Jason in my corner and he was usually there because he was a very chill individual. He didn't work me up. He didn't like, there was no stress with him. It was always like, Hey, you want to warm up? Like, you know, Hey, it's getting close to time. He kept me in check when in the back and, uh, wrap my hands and stuff. And he, you know, that was always an absolute, like no one would get put over him. He was always going to come. And, uh, I was a stubborn guy too. I wasn't, I wasn't the best coachable game plan guy. If the game plan didn't fit to the way I fought, it was probably not going to work. And as I reached the end of my career with that stuff, I got better at it. But for the most part, I was a bite down and move forward. And when I veered away from that, I didn't like, I didn't feel comfortable. Um, it's just how I'm just stupid that way. So it, Cornering me probably wasn't always fun for some of my coaches. They probably wanted things out of me that I wasn't going to do. So, yeah. Well, I think it's it's easy to sit on the couch like I do and watch. <laughs> and you hear, I love I love UFC without crowd because oh, yeah. you hear that you hear the corner. But it's also easy to say, "Hey, do this." Yeah, you're not always hearing it. You got your yeah. own thoughts. Um. In relate and to to relate to people listening, I, I was uh had the chance to see Rob fight in Philadelphia, and the thing that I took away from and I still put as a very high mark on his character as a human is that I have a ton of friends who are dying to paint gang dudes and all this crazy tough guy shit, but I'll tell you there's a lot of people who discredit people for singing in certain kind of bands or they don't wear certain things. You you got into the ring with someone, and you had like the quickest flash knockdown. Yeah, and you took it so much fucking better than so many small offenses that I've seen. It's the stupidest hardcore bullshit get fought about, and, and it just you you taught me a lesson there. Like, look, man, I I came here to do this. I I, I you know it is what it is, and, and it's such a it's such a testament to your character that you were able to. Go out there, put it on the line, lose, and and it wasn't like the guy wasn't laying on top of you, beating you senseless. Like it was a flash knockdown, which actually I think might I I don't know maybe it, it's probably better for you healthy to not get beat down that bad, but it's probably more disappointing because it happened so quick. Right. Yeah, but you, you just rolled it up and you're walking around smiling afterwards. Yeah, I that that fight the the way that ended because he. Uh, I, I knew th- I could feel what he was doing because he'd hit me. He was throwing these uh, switch kicks 
and I could feel him dialing up the speed because he was throwing it off time. And I was like, all right, I know he's setting something up. And then he threw one hard. And when it hit me, it jarred me. And I remember it. And what I don't remember is the right hand that came after it. And that sat me down. And I went out and woke up. And I woke up before I even hit the floor. But I was falling in such an embarrassing fucking way that the, the ref had already moved in. I saw his legs. And I was like, yep, that fight's over. And uh, I remember going to my corner. And my one of my coaches going, he was like, man, did, uh, did you uh, – you see that cross coming and i went there was a cross and he just all he did was grab me and kind of pull me in like yeah yeah you didn't you don't even remember it happened um i mean my head hurt that night i know that but uh for the most part it, it just sucks when it happens and it's it it's just one of those things that you know like you you get into a fight game it's gonna fucking happen uh i i got finished twice and one was a flash one, and the other one was just uh, early in my career where I jumped in with a lion who I was not fucking ready for. And, you know, the rest of the times I've had, I had a lot of close fights, and that was kind of what broke me fight-wise. Like, something that, may, it, it wasn't it broke me, it just, like, I had a lot of split-decision losses, and they ate me up because I just kept feeling like I wasn't doing something right. And I probably, and I wasn't, I, maybe I didn't have the will to win or something or whatever. Maybe I wasn't killer enough for it, but I like didn't, it didn't, something wasn't there. And I started really feeling like I couldn't find that. And as I was getting, I'm getting older and the injuries are adding up. I'm like, what the fuck am I doing? Uh, and, and I, I started, I was, I've coached wrestling now for eight years at, um, this be my ninth season that they're not going to actually have because of COVID probably. But uh, that started meaning a lot more to me. I started looking at the kids, like the kids I was coaching and seeing like my impact towards them. And I was like, I, I need to start putting my efforts more to this than, than myself, which is also a hard fucking thing to, to actually do when you're sort of an egomaniac about stuff you do. Cause you constantly you know, chase these dragons. I think that there comes a time with everything that we do where if we're not going to see it all the way through, you start looking for ways out. When, yeah. when did you start seeing a way out? When did you start touching into wrestling? And during this whole time, you were still working with your father doing carpentry through with all this, correct? No, no, no. So okay. I know. So I... I actually hadn't worked for him in years. I went, I uh, took over in 2010, actually, I took over as the manager at Baltimore BJJ. I would work for my father off and on doing side work, but I didn't, um, I didn't totally, I didn't totally stop. But when was it? Like 2000, still fighting. I guess like 2017, I worked for him a little bit, but I started into the personal training thing. Uh, like re I, 2012 is when I really start. I, I was personal training people, but I took it seriously years later because I, I wanted a I wanted a job that ran parallel sort of to fighting, something that wouldn't get in the way of fighting. So I did personal training, um, and there was a lot of construction stuff that went on in between there. I, I built a fucking commercial gym once for a uh, I took on the job as a construction manager for a major build 
when I blew my knee, I was like, I needed a job and this guy offered it. And I was like, fuck it. I've never done this before, but I know how to build shit. Uh, definitely over my head, but you know, fake it till you make it. Um, and then I, yeah, I went to started really taking personal training seriously. Just years of grinding. Like it just made sense to do that. And, uh, towards the end, I, I had these two title fights in Stroudsbury against this, this tough kid who had a shit ton of fights. And I, and Ruiner, actually, I got the offer for it while Ruiner was in California in 2016, I think. 2017. 2017. And I took the fight. I had like five weeks to get in shape. I, you know, went in a little under, a little, not as the best condition as I'd like to be, but we had this war. And they immediately wanted a rematch. And then uh, the September of that following right after that, because that was in July. Yeah. Uh, yeah, July 2017. And then September 2017 was the second fight. And that was, like, hands down my my favorite fight. It, uh, I lost the split decision as dude in his hometown. It was a close fucking fight. Um, I... If you, you know, you asked me, I won it, but whatever it, it was. So it was that fucking close. But, uh, after that fight, losing that fight, I just, a part of me didn't care because it was one of many split decision losses and I kind of stopped giving a shit. I, and the next fight I took was so stupid. Like I took this, there's this kid from this area up and comer, He's fought on the contender series. He's very good. Uh, I'm a bit too old to fight him, and I said, fuck it. And he was also friends with my wife, which made it so goddamn awkward because we know each other and we're semi-okay. Like, I have no issue with the guy. The dude came to my fucking wedding. Like, that's how okay we are. And uh, it was it was definitely weird. Um because I did not train for that. I trained hard for that fight, but there was a part of me that didn't want to do it. So it did not help. And I, it wasn't that I, I didn't enjoy fighting. I just didn't, I was like, I don't fucking want to do this, but I want to call it a day. And there was a part of me in that fight that wished he would have just put me down. Like I, there was a part in the fight where he caught me with a, a good grazing head kick, kind of the ones that kind of skip off the top of your head. And he saw he rocked me and he did. I wobbled. The crowd saw it. And I, I brought my hands tight and he stepped back and uh, I said, I yelled at him, fucking do it. And I was like, just fucking do it already. And he shook his head, no, and stepped back and just kind of jabbed a few times because it was close towards the end of the round. And he was, and uh, he, because it, he kind of fucking took pity on me. And that, that was one of those things I was like, I don't want to fucking do this anymore. Like, I just didn't care. Like, he, uh, he knew he could have put me away. And I wanted him to. I wanted to just go out of my shield and be done with it. And he wasn't willing to give me that satisfaction. But did you speak with him after about it? Uh, we've talked. I didn't talk to him about it. He he even said in the post fight that he wasn't. If he had the opportunity, he wouldn't take it because he was like, "Nah." He's like, "I'm I'm friends with him. Like I I, I can't do that." Just like. Uh, you're better man than me because I would have. But. <laughs> <laughs> so, what did it take? What did it take for you to get? Did you get certified? Did you have to take classes, or was it just based on all the experiences between your early career or your early just being oh, a wrestler yeah. 
how does it, how does it work to become a trainer and like what did you do so i had i have uh i had a mentor have a mentor whatever i um my strength coach trained me uh who runs a uh, baltimore kettlebell club and i was introduced to kettlebells like fucking it's about 10 years now and i was using that a lot for my strength conditioning and just the ways of using a kettlebell. I, I am, if there's one thing I'm very confident in teaching, it's stuff related to kettlebells. And that was where a lot of my training started. I, I mean, I had your basic weightlifting that I had done growing up that I had a good understanding of, but kettlebells were my big thing. And then I started attending different workshops. I started getting all these smaller certifications. And then, uh, what was it about? year and a half ago, I decided I'm going to go back to school and actually get, you know, an athletic, uh, uh, exercise science degree. So I've been working on that. Now I have like a NASA certification. I, I have like a ton of small, tiny certifications for the different things. So I was trained. Yeah. So I was trained and I don't have the certification, but I was trained in the strong first style, which is the same as the RKC. They're pretty similar, but it's the same idea, the same hard style kettlebell training. Um, and then the stuff with on it and all that. So that's pretty much what my life is now. I have, I have a, like COVID brought me a lot of clients because of, uh, people not having gyms. So I could train privately. So I went from, uh, what I went from like 10 clients to about 20 some plus all my classes then also teaching jujitsu and coaching wrestling and everything else. So I stay on the mats pretty much all day. Uh, and I, I still manage the same gym. I, I manage Barber BJJ and uh, actually the goal right now is next year. I'm, I'm, I'm going to be buying it. So I will take over as the owner. Like I, and, and that is more or less a business thing. I have no desire to be the head black belt or anything like that. I, uh, I just, I just, that entrepreneur mentality is kind of taken over. And I like, Oh no, no, no. I want to own this space. I want to own this building. I think I can do a lot with the business and I'll let the instructors instruct and you let me, you know, grow it. Like, let me do the building of the, the actual building and the business. I guess I have, a couple questions regarding all this. So first let's just go into your wrestling thing. You jump back into that. Yeah. Uh, how did you get back into wrestling and then your coaching kids program? Like explain that part first. Yeah. So in two, 2000, whatever the hell that was eight years ago, uh, 12. Yeah. So 2012, my, one of my old teammates is the head coach and he says he's trying to, we, we, we both grew up under a great coach who had never wrestled a day in his life. He had a state champion son and he had, he, what he did when he was younger was he was sitting with the practices with his kid with the same junior league coach that I had. So uh, the systems were all the same. It was all learned from the same guys. And my, my coach in high school was a very, was very good at delegating and very good at uh, organizing. And he had good, um, good assistant coaches under him. So, you know, I was, I was, I was a much better than average wrestler in high school. And my old teammate took over as the head coach. And he came to me and was like, I need a JV coach. I need assistant coaches. Uh, would you want to do this? And the schedule for JV is like so much less than varsity. So for those first few years, 
I only had to worry about JV. So I was able to fight all I was able to focus on training. I didn't, it didn't get in the way really at all. And I get working with the kids and like, you know, if I want to work on with varsity with any of the studs we had, that was good for me too. But, uh, for the most part, I kept one foot out the door for a few of the seasons. And then I more or less wanted to see more out of the team. And I was the more experienced coach. Uh, being all the stuff I did, all the traveling I did. I was wrestling with some of the, you know, great fucking wrestlers and rooms that I was in. I had training at TriStar. I mean, they have the fucking one of the Olympic team groups up there. Like I was training all over the country. I trained in Minnesota. They have like some of the best Greco guys. Uh, I was becoming a better wrestler after wrestling. Uh, and especially my jujitsu style is incredibly top heavy. Um, it's more or less like, you're not going to get me down and I'll eventually just get you anyway. So I've always stuck with wrestling and kind of built everything around it. And, uh, it, as I took more control over the wrestling team and sort of the focus of how we've been training, um, it became a bigger and bigger part of my life. And, you know, I work with kids all year for my team. Um, and then I coach a club team, the outsiders. I help with that as well. Uh, which is going on right now, which I have a few of my kids from the high school on that. It's just a very weird dynamic because you're not really allowed to talk about it. It's strange because like, you know, I'm employed by the school, but I have this club team. So it's strange. It's odd how this works. Now through all this, what was your, I mean, and when I say through all this, obviously when you had that MMA fight, did I watch you, you were doing like the, uh, the, either like the last of reunion shows. Yeah. How much, how much, how much did all of your hardcore experience build on this foundation? That would be this entrepreneurial run with this program of now what you talk about the wrestling and you're getting all these certifications. It's well, I guess the question is, I should say two short forms. So much of what your hardcore background was kind of built you to this moment. hundred percent. Yet at yeah. the same time as the same the same foundation kind of pulled you away from the scene a bit because you had to yeah. focus on being like a real life person. Yeah. So it's it's hard, man, because like I I I still make it I still make it to some shows, not many, but there's still shows where I'm like, I have to go to that. Um I don't want to miss that. Uh it's a struggle because I, you know, I have a normal fucking job. I I have many jobs. I have many titles. Um and that that's very hard, but all the stuff I learned being in bands about networking, uh, the work ethic it took, it's always kind of looped back around. Like what I learned in wrestling helped me here. And then what I learned in this helped me here. And, uh, it, it all built on it to where I am now, which is why I, I you know, was like, okay, I want to buy this business. I want to run this. I, I, I build, I case in point, I, we need a venue. I built a fucking venue. When I first started fighting, I was like, well, I need a cage wall. I built a fucking cage wall out of four by fours and fencing. Like I just actually tore that down the other day. Cause it was so fucked up. Um, and that was eight years ago when I built that, uh, that, you know, all, all these things all intertwine. I'm like, okay, well I got to do that. So I, I'll just, I'll just build it. Like do it yourself. Like, okay, I, well, I need to train. I'm going to go here. I'm going to do that. And, um, 
it's the same idea. Like, I, I, okay, I got this club team. We need to practice. Okay, well, we're going to do it these days. I, uh, I'll get a new mat. I'll get, I'll get more space. I'll figure it out. Um, it all, all lends itself to one another. I think if you're, if you're not learning anything for being in a band, I don't know, like, I guess it's fun, but there's always something to learn from it. Like I, I, I couldn't imagine if somebody going on tour for as long as I did and not coming off of that with some sort of entrepreneurial spirit. Uh, like, you know, guy like Dom, uh, Dom, is, you know, it's in point teeth and in, in integrity. Now we, uh, we hung out the other day. I had to replace doorknobs at his house cause he couldn't figure out how to fucking get these newfangled doorknobs in. So we're just talking about bullshit the whole time. But it's the same idea. Dom's another guy that like the amount of shit like punk and hardcore taught us about business and like how you run businesses and things like that. Uh, it, it's, uh, I wouldn't be where I am if it wasn't for playing in bands for so fucking long. I wouldn't have that same same spirit. That's for damn sure. I wouldn't be willing to go to workshops in random fucking states and listen to dudes talk so I can like network with so and so and so and so and figure shit out. I uh, what's crazy about that? I'm at I was I was at a one in Seattle. Only other dude in the room, mangled ears, tons of tattoos, old fucking uh, punk dude from uh where the hell was he li- i can't remember where he was living but he uh he was he ended up being the coach of some former ufc champ who moved to maryland we didn't even know each other in maryland and now now we occasionally train together and he's uh you know he, he gave up tattooing to do be personal training because he got tired of like just being banged up being a tattoo artist like doing jujitsu and everything and they just couldn't like fucking hang anymore tattooing fucking crazy well i feel like there's a trajectory that came from hardcore that kind of pushed you in all these directions obviously wrestling is a foundation point for you because it just gave you that work ethic and it's 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 awesome to hear that you're cycling you're circling back on this with being the uh future owner of baltimore bjj because obviously that was like the fostering point for yeah you with so much do you ever feel like there's something that you wish you were better at considering that the things that you immerse yourself in you seem to man if not master but you like gain like a high level of proficiency at yeah i i struggle with that that whole like uh jack of all trades master of none i um i it's always like but the thing is if I focused on one of those things something else wouldn't have happened so it's really hard to say that like what if I would have stayed in college and wrestled in college? Well, I've been a better wrestler, which meant I would have been a better MMA fighter. Or maybe I would have wrestled in college and never done Ruiner at all, and I wouldn't have any of that experience, and I might never have fought. I could have banged myself up and not done it. So there's always what-ifs to everything. Um, I guess I, I'm pretty satisfied with the way things went uh, looking back. I, I always can wish I'm better at something like I wish, like, I, I think I became pretty proficient in boxing towards the end of it. And I always wish I would have put more time into that. Uh, when I was younger, I didn't box until I, you know, started in jujitsu and then I took it super fucking seriously. And, you know, I, that was one of those things that now I respect it much, a much different way. Um, but yeah, I, I, uh, there's some things, but they would change something else. So what's there's really don't want to change it, I guess. 
I know when I toured in the early 2000s, my friends who were training in jujitsu because it was starting to like really starting to open yeah. up were telling me like they're getting um you know I just pulled my this you know just pulled my AC out like all these yeah. fucking crazy injuries crazy and I injuries, was yeah. I was going home and working with my hands so the reality was I, I can't do this fucking thing and end up with a broken fucking arm or something like that and then not be able to work and I I wonder if you had some of that kind of early experience hearing about BJJ before you eventually got yourself immersed in it? Uh, no, it, it didn't. Injuries, man. So when I was eight years old, I, I got ran over by a car. I broke my femur, cracked my skull. Like, I, I got fucked up pretty bad. Um, I've had a lot of injuries growing up that I had to really bounce back from. And uh, I always was told, don't do this other thing because you got so badly hurt. And I did it anyway. So like, I was like, oh, well, I'll do the tough thing. Uh, don't do this sport. Oh, fuck it. I'll do wrestling. Like, I, that was never something that deterred me. Uh, I was stupid that way, I guess. Um, like, I got hurt a lot. So it wasn't even that I was accident prone or like injury. I guess I was injury prone, but I bounced. But the thing was, I bounced back. Like I usually healed pretty quickly. I was like, all right, well, back to the grindstone, whatever I got to do. And uh, I never considered that. I I broke I broke my hand training for my third. I would have had. I would have ended up having four amateur fights, but my third one. What would have been my third one? I broke uh the metal carpal in one of my hands just passing in jujitsu. so I, I planted my hand on someone's knee went to cut to the left he arm dragged me and i replanted my hand and when i did i rolled randomly rolled my ring finger over my pinky and snapped the bone and i was like what the fuck was that and uh it didn't really hurt and then the next day went up to philly went to spar blocked a head kick and went tunnel vision because it it pretty much totally cracked the bone and uh that that you know i i was working then for my dad i had to swing a fucking hammer come monday so i i had to cast it up and i'm sitting there like trying to swing my arm down i'm cutting every few days i'm cutting a little bit of the cast away so i could grip around the hammer uh you know smart stuff like that so i never really I never really worried too much. Guys are getting injured. I used to, I may used to make the joke that we should replace the images on the window of Baltimore BJJ with MRIs of uh, knees, just so people can see what they're in store for. Because all of us, I think at one point I counted um, nine knee surgeries on one mat. I was like, he had two, he had one. Like, is this par for course? My, uh, oh yeah. So the break, the end of Roner. I was competing. I was doing jujitsu. We did, we came home from that first, that last European tour. We played This Is Hardcore 2016. We had three shows after that. One was a benefit show in New York City with uh, that band Another Breath and a few other bands. I competed in Naga that day, got heel hooked in the finals, popped my ankle, tap, drive my car from fucking, uh, drive my truck with another friend from the DC area all the way to New York city. And I tell Rona, I was like, uh, when I get there, I probably can't help you load, load anything just so you know, cause I can barely walk. So uh, yeah, I hobbled my ass, drove all the way up there. My fucking legs swollen. Uh, it hurt like hell, but yeah, I, uh, uh, so 
I didn't really think about that shit very often. How much does your background in wrestling competition play off in your like Naga and whatever else when you compete in BJJ? Oh, big. I mean, I uh, like big. I, I think I, I scoring wise, I tend to think that way. Um, the last big comp I did was I did a fight to win last year and another one of those close fucking judges decisions losses, but I lost uh dude went for a hail mary fucking like straight arm lock with seven seconds left and that's how they awarded him the win i got i mean he didn't get it but that's how he he won because it's fight to win but um the that match i had a black belt a lupus lupus cousin actually he uh i'd watched his nogi matches in ibjjf and he shot on everyone I was like, all right. And I had everybody and their mother tell me he's going to pull guard. And I'm like, I'm telling you, he ain't going to fucking pull guard. This dude is going to shoot on me to try to prove something. I bet you. And not even 10 seconds in the round. He shot. I stuffed it. He backed out. He came back up, shot again. I stuffed it. And I, I then I started standing straight up because I was like, go for it. You're never going to get me down. And he shot again. I tied him up, tripped him, threw him nearly out of bounds. I was like, you know. I, I was, I'm pretty confident in that degree because of my wrestling. Uh, I still put it in with any tough college kids when they come home. I try to work in with them and let them kick the shit out of the old man because that's what happens after a while. But I, I'm usually pretty good for the first few minutes, and I'm like, oh, you guys are you guys are in way better shape than me. But because uh, <laughs> it's a different grind, man. When those when they come fresh off the college mat, it is not fun for me. Like I got to be getting ready for something to hang with them. And uh, I'm always picking their brain when they come back, if there's new, new technique or whatever, because they, they still come back. and want to kick my ass. So I get to see, get to see all these kids uh, that I was either coaching or beating up, beating up on uh, as they were growing up. And they want to take a piece of me now that I'm pushing 40. I find it interesting that in your, wrestling and in your jiu-jitsu and your training you're always imparting stuff on people like you're not just taking but you're giving back where do you think you came where do you think you came up where do you think that came into your uh wheelhouse and where did you get that from do you think i i think i got I i do honestly think i got that from my dad in a lot of ways my father is a very as much of an asshole as he could have been growing up he it's funny uh he the, people saw two different versions of my dad especially when he was a cop he was just this cold cold person um because of what he had to deal with and when they knew him years later the ones that saw him he was just a different human for the most part but he uh my dad was a guy who even though he could be a selfish dick sometimes he was the guy that would like bend over backwards to help somebody if they needed help um and had the mentality like well they ask for help you that's what you do you help like there's just a very cold blanket statement like well they need help and you fucking help them like uh, like even if he's frustrated with what he's doing it was very like well that's what that's what you do that's what we do for people like and uh i i guess i always had that thing like hey one specific situation uh a mutual friend of ours that or a friend, whatever you want to call him. Person I didn't get along with was in Blacklisted for a minute. And I had a Blacklisted show booked. And it was like, well, you, you're still going to do it. I'm like, yeah, why wouldn't I? 
It's a band who needs a show. I don't give a fuck about my personal fucking issues with anybody. Like, it's a band that needs a show. Like, I, I, I have the amount of times I have to be in a room with people that I maybe don't get along with or respect, whatever. Uh, I, I still am willing to help them. Like, we can put our shit aside because I, I, I do expect that back. Like, I expect, like, no, we're all in the same type of boat here, or at least the same. We're in the same fucking world, subculture, whatever you want to say it. And it's like. I, I can work for you if you can work for me. I can get over our shit. Like it doesn't mean we have to like each other. It doesn't mean we have to do anything for each other. Like it or uh, not do anything for each other. It doesn't mean we have to like each other. But that's kind of just how I view things. Um, teammates, whatever. I do the same thing for people I've had to fight. It's you know I've I've had guys I've had to fight call me in because they know I'm still pretty good at something. Even if they beat me and are like, hey, I need work with this. And I'm like, all right, well. I got, you know, I can do this schedule next week, blah, blah, blah. So There's definitely something that correlates to you between the hard work and the wisdom you're imparting and this, like the, the communities that you immerse yourself into. And it seems like there's so many similarities between all of these things, the wrestling, the hardcore shows, running the hardcore venue, the touring and, and the MMA. And now you're going to be running a BJJ school is it, I would have to say that all of this is just like your life's work is all building towards the same thing, which is, you know, rinse, repeat, work hard, yeah, yeah. learn more stuff, teach other people it, meet new people, help them. And I, I yeah. definitely think that you are well suited to take on the responsibilities and role of running a jujitsu school, because that's, it, that's what, that's exactly what that job needs is someone who can teach and help and reinvest themselves into these people, you know? Yeah, no, I, I mean, I, we have a lot of, in this area, we have a lot of really good jujitsu schools and some are more focused on MMA. Some are more focused on this, that, or the other. And, uh, you know, we're predominantly jujitsu gym, grappler gym. And, um, that's definitely, you know, I, I'm waiting for that day. I get that kid. It's like, I think I have a few of them actually that, uh, I can, kind of really really take under my wing and you know make him into that really competitive jujitsu player grappler whatever no gi guy uh and you know that's that's like a dream of mine so i you know how wayne's world where he walks in and he opens that door with all the ninjas yeah with the training <laughs> i always wanted to walk yeah so one morning i walked into my gym and uh johns hopkins wrestling team uh, they're a pretty good division three team. They uh, they're using the mat and their old, their coach is my old freestyle coach. And some of the kids are using on uh, the weekends are coming in and using my mat space, like 8am to like nine 30. So I'll come in and there'll be a bunch of college kids just kicking the crap out of each other. And I got kids back on, or I got some guys back on my equipment working out who I let them use some of my shit. And I'm like, this is like my dream. If there was like, and then the best is when I turn the radio on, then it's just like random hardcore band starts playing. I'm like, this is it. This is what I've all of it put together. If I, like if I was able to offer a touring space, I would have everything under one roof. I've worked for my whole life. And I've had that dream. If I had the space, I, I don't know if I would make the gym full-blown all-ages venue on the weekends, but I would be totally okay doing the occasional show inside the gym because I think that would just be 
just such a fitting thing to do. But I feel like most hardcore kids who envision a business often think about a way to also juxtapose having a hardcore show in their business. Always. Whatever the business is, you run like, yeah, well, I got the Sherman Williams. I'm selling paint. But hey, there's <laughs> this big space in the back. We could turn it into a fucking venue. Yeah. Uh, before we get into some short questions, I, I realize that you're not really much of a gee guy, are you? I put the gee on out of respect. I am. Uh, I, I suck at traditions. But I, I put it on because I recognized years ago that that it will it slows the wrestler down, so it makes me think. And sometimes I need to be humbled. So like I, I will put the gi on because it I, I still I get plenty out of it, but it helps me think some sometimes. But uh, during COVID, the very beginning when it was just like a small group of us getting together, because you know for obvious reasons, like I was speakeasy jujitsu was happening, we were sneaking in the back door of the gym. Um, I was doing a ton of gi and then slowly the classes restarted and also the wrestlers were home and I was like, then I was jumping back and forth, but, uh, I'm not a big gi guy, but I do it sometimes. I mean, I do want my black belt one day and I want to earn it. I want it like legitimate. So, you know, I, I, the, I'm sure I'll be a brown belt for a pretty long time before that happens, unless I decide for like you know eight months, all I'm going to do is compete at brown belt. Do you find, as someone who is very deep in the BJJ world, but also from the hardcore world, that more and more people like myself are popping into jujitsu and with social media? And are yeah. they hitting you? Are they hitting you up at all? Are you getting hit up? Nah, by people some, sometimes, not a lot. Do you remember years ago we were at this is hardcore watching your uh, like knights fight it out, like your yeah. bodies, and you were making fun of jujitsu, like you were you were kind of mocking me for doing it because you weren't yeah. into it yet. I was. I, I literally. I've. I. I don't know if I. I don't know if you heard why I did why I even do jujitsu. Some kid basically came and tried to hit me with a baseball bat at the end of a show and no. got and a guy in front of me, a guy who was with me is a black belt under Jared. Yeah. And it was in front of H2O and H2O was kind of fucking with me, but they're like, dude, that was really good street jujitsu. And I was like, dude, um, I jujitsu had me lose 65 pounds. Yeah. At the time I was, no, I saw it. That's awesome. Like if you would have asked me until the moment that someone told me, Hey, you're not that bad at it. I would have been like, A, I would never be good at it. B, I was fat. And, <laughs> and, and like a and like a true goon, the idea of striking and kicking sounds great. Yeah. The I idea of rolling around with someone yeah. was so unnatural. Yeah. And so stressful. And I and I had worked the door at bars and ticket IDs and I worked security at shows. I worked security at the bars. So I'm able to like drag someone outside of a club. But I was so fucking ignorant to the relationship to how you feel mentally and physically from jujitsu. And like, you know, like for instance, today, like we went to jujitsu and trained before this podcast. And I spent another 15 minutes, even though I know how to do this podcast, because somebody asked the question about the sweep that I did. Yeah. I never would have known, I never would have known what jujitsu was. And no matter how long I've known Jared, I never would have went to the school and given an avid shot yeah, yeah. 
unless someone told me it was applicable outside. And, and I, I now, like, you know, uh, Hard Carl, who owns Jinx Proof out of DC, lives up here as my main yeah. training partner. We both talk about it all the time. Like, dude, we had so many years to get started before now. Like, what the fuck? Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I've run into a few. I run into ones. I'm friends with some people who, like, even wrote zines and then started writing for, like, Gracie Mag. Like, did you know, like, transcended from one thing all the way to the other side. Uh, so that it definitely happens. Um, I know I still have, you know, a lot of friends who did both. What am I hearing? Oh, it's a dog. And uh, the I, I I still do come across it. There's uh, kids who like Ruiner who hit me up and I'll be like, hey, so I heard you train. I'm doing this. I'm like, it's awesome. Um, and, and both in kickboxing, MMA, everything. Uh, I've had all of them, you know, reach out, ask me questions about stuff. Uh, I've had some. I've had anybody dropping a gym. I've had like one or two i've had not recently but years not long ago it was like a few years ago i had people jump at the gym and then they kind of gave me like weird looks and i'm like and then i realized why they're looking at me and they're like you're you were in ruiner weren't you like yeah they're like oh okay i saw you guys i just moved here it's something like that like there'll be some weird jujitsu kid from uh you know random ass town somewhere so it's awesome when all this, all these little worlds collide. Yeah, it, it reminds you how they're parallel, but yeah. they they cross over. Even actually, even the sword fighter guys, who I, I have the main guy on the podcast, because he runs his own um, training facility in New Hampshire. They now awesome. spend an entire training hour using judo and jujitsu. Because they fight in rings where you fight on barricades. Oh, they do that. He does that. I've seen yeah. That. So they so they learn they're learning how to use their body to take. Because if they if they take the guy down, they're basically out. Yeah. Like if they so now they're working on judo and jujitsu moves specifically to benefit their sword fighting, and it's such a <laughs> surreal thing to be like. That's so weird. It's so crazy, but it's so awesome to see all these worlds crisscrossing over. So I'll ask you a couple quick ones, and we'll get you out of here. Um, you you said about doing a show at BJJ, uh, Baltimore BJJ. <laughs> yeah, and we've talked about some of the crazy. What was the weirdest place that you played a show at Roner? Uh weirdest, like weirdest venue, or like you know, like the most bizarre scenario, or just a, a weird scenario. I guess if it's not a weird oh, venue, man. There's so there's so many for this one. Um, well, if you got one or two, do one or two then. Well, I I think weird to other people is I don't think they realize in Europe you almost always played uh, like especially in Germany you play old SS barracks, so that that's always weird to people because you're like oh, the Nazis this used to be their hangout. So <laughs> um. And the spots in Japan, you play weird venues that are in the basement that are like fallout shelters. So they open up these gigantic doors to let people in. And you know, you know, as a guy who runs venues in, in America, like firewise, you ain't getting out of these things quick. Those doors are big, sealed shut, soundproof doors. It's crazy that they even exist. Um, I, I don't know, man. Like, weirdest, we, 
we've played so many fucking weird places. Uh, oh, I got one. You'll love this. This wasn't even Ruiner. This is fucking Farewell Hope. We played with 25 to Life at a strip club in fucking like Chantilly, Virginia or some shit. Uh, with looking forward, mind you, with posse ass looking forward. And um, <laughs> yeah, with, with 25 to Life. No, it was coming correct. It wasn't even fucking 25 to Life. Yeah. Shit, that was one of the weirdest ones. And our drummer, I had to keep pulling him back because he found out him and one of the strippers, well, one of the strippers was vegan, just like him, and they wanted to fucking talk about it. And I and he, this this chick is fucking standing there, leg up on the stage, butt naked. He's just talking to her. And I had to like pry him away because we had to fucking play. I don't know how that <laughs> popped in my head. <laughs> but but that uh that would be one of them. Uh, I'm sure there's weirder ones than that though. In in relation to you being in the ring, there's obviously a lot of things written on the thrill of victory, on the agony of defeat. Yeah. What was your biggest life's victory and your biggest defeat as of right now? Huh. Um, Sorry for getting so deep, dude. Yeah, that was deep. That was deep, man. Uh, biggest victory... That's that's a hard one because uh, I, I know moments that meant like everything to me that were crazy. So I don't want to say I guess victory, but uh, band wise, there was a, like if you're searching for that high, like that feeling that you're never gonna get again. Ruiner, the first time we ever played Fluff Fest in Czech Republic, was the first time. Uh, we ever had a response to us that was something else. That's something I'd never felt before. Like you had 3000 fucking people uh, stoked to watch you. That was one of the craziest experiences of my life. And it happened again. The last time we went there in 2018, we played fluff fest when we got back together. And uh, those feelings are fucking nuts. Like that's, that's just some, that was a, a moment I I never thought I'd feel. I didn't really ever expect playing in a band to have that sort of feeling. Those are the feelings that match up with winning a big fight, with going in, putting all the work in, and then you know fucking taking it home. Um, I uh, biggest defeat the my second to last fight because my last fight I knew I knew I was going in against somebody. That was extremely tough. And it wasn't like I was going into it thinking I was going to lose because you never go into a fight thinking that. But it's I was not in the right headspace for that fight. And I knew that. Uh, my second to last fight for the title, that was, that was probably one of my bigger defeats because that was such a close fight. And I felt so fucking broken when it was over. I like just like I did... I never trained so hard for anything fight wise. Like I did everything extra. And, and the thing is we all fighters say that they say they, they did everything. The thing is you can't always do that because your body doesn't let you, you fucking get an injury. You do something where you're going into the fight. You know, you did the best you possibly could. You ran those extra miles every day. You did, you know, those extra sparring sessions, the extra strength, strength training, everything. But that second, that, that second title fight, my second to last fight, that fight uh, 
all stars lined up for my training. I didn't have an injury. I didn't have any bullshit. My fucking weight was on point. Everything fucking worked. And, uh, and losing that fight hurt so goddamn bad. Um, and it was, yeah, that, that was like probably my biggest defeat to date, I guess you'd say. So it's also one of those things that makes me miss competition a lot. Cause I hate having that feeling. I hate like not getting that back. And I haven't had a good win in a very long time. And now my wins, uh, now my wins are more business wins. My business, my, my, you know, like I'm doing well in college. They're grown up wins, you know, they're like boring people wins. I'm like, Oh, I got straight A's this semester. That's awesome. I got a, you know, I like, I have this many clients I'm doing well. Like I, those are all great. But when you're kind of like an egomaniac too, you sort of go, no, I need more than that. Cause I miss competition. I miss like the fact that I could truly fail. Like, and I, I think that's something, uh, some I ask people all the time if uh, if when they, they they talk about doing something great, they're not even great, but doing like they they they're about to set out on something and they're nervous about it. And I always ask them like, "Have you ever failed at anything?" And they kind of man, some people do not know how to fucking respond to that question. Like they don't, they've never thought about it. And a lot of times it means you've never failed. Like you, you've never tried to fail. Like I've failed. I've failed plenty of times. And like, it's important to fail. And I think if you've never actually put yourself out there to fail, it's even worse because fuck man, when you, when you're younger, you can bounce back from that shit. When you get, you get older and you're in midlife and you're like, wait, have I, damn, I've never put myself out there like that. That's some shit you have to fucking live with. Because <laughs> you might be running out of time to fucking try, but went deep for deep there. No, it's actually great. I uh, I was on a horror podcast, and I I said that even Babe Ruth struck out, and then I was like, well, I think he struck out. <laughs> yeah. And then this, so this week I googled, and it turns out he was formerly known as like the king of strikeouts. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it was such a great lesson to be taught that, like, the reason why we know Babe Ruth for who he is as a home run king and all this shit <laughs> is because he was really, really willing to, to either strike the fuck yeah. out and just knock just, it out yeah. of the park or fuck you. Right. Go. Yep. And I find that lesson to be so valuable. Like, you don't know the guy who's got the most bunts in the history. Of it. <laughs> yeah. you, you, you know the guy who fucking hit all the home runs. Yeah. Um. I guess the the thing for me that I, I really just it's it's so inspiring to see you continue to cycle through the lessons learned at the earliest stages in first wrestling with the work, which then would lead to hardcore, and then the hardcore networking, the kind of like don't stop at what you don't know and find someone that could teach you, and you're rolling this all into a, 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 a insane track record with touring so many different places and a hard, you know, I know hardcore people listen to this now are younger and be like, Oh, well that's not too hard. But yeah, in 2004, yeah. 2005, there wasn't the same structure right. set up yeah. for like easy advance and ruiner had smaller labels put out earlier stuff before they were became on bridge nine, which is a success in itself. And it was all self-made. And it's just great to hear that now you're going to be running the jujitsu school and you still are touched in the wrestling 
I just really love your story and your your as people would say this is a movie your character arc is quite <laughs> yeah. amazing you know thank you I know it's and and this is why when I, you're one of the few people that I first emailed when I was talking about doing this podcast and I'm so glad that I we waited a little bit because there's so many lessons to be learned here um just drop some uh pearls of wisdom so to speak on people if you want to give some like kind of advice you would normally give and I'd really like for you to tell people where they could find you for Get Wrecked Fitness. Yeah. And I saw your – another thing is, like, I'm sorry to see that you're not going to be pushing BJJ with Baltimore BJJ for a little bit. I saw your post today saying you're going to wait till spring or whatever, right? Oh, no, no, no. So that was just uh, – that was a women's event we were going to do because of COVID. Oh, okay. No, we're good. We opened up. Okay. Yeah, oh, we, had, we had our little – we had a little outbreak. Uh, got scary there for a minute. Um, All right, so you're staying which, open. Good, good, good. We're good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're good. We're good. We're good. That was just about a, a, a event we were going to do. Um, so explain to everybody how um, some, uh, you know, I, I guess we'll do it this way. Explain to everybody how they can see the things that you're doing. Also, we didn't talk about it, but I still think it's badass that you're doing this crazy battle maces on top of, oh, uh, oh, top of kettlebells. Yeah, my, but, my uh, specialty thing, maces. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, lay out what you're doing, how you can provide any kind of like fitness thing, the jujitsu stuff, and then leave us with some impactful, insightful shit, man. <laughs> right. I'll, I'll try. Uh, so what? Get Rec Fitness on Instagram. That's uh, that's where I, I post a lot of my content. Um, I'm on Facebook. Also, Get Rec Fitness. You might find her under Wreck It Rob. That was my uh, my thing for fighting. Um, getrecfitness.com is my website. I run Baltimore Brazilian Jiu Jitsu. It's at baltimorebjj.com if you're in the Baltimore area. Uh, oh, actually, you can't drop in because we're not letting anybody drop in during COVID. So when all this shit comes down, come to Baltimore, you know, maybe February, I hope, fucking spring, who knows. Um, pearls of wisdom. Uh, I, I already said it, and it's been my kind of line for a while now. Is like uh, think about think about if you've ever failed at something. Like I, I ask myself that a lot. About I think about those types of questions. Um, did I give enough that the failure was worth it? And you know, those are the types of things I, I tend to think when it comes to work. That uh, did I did I do enough? And you know, I think we can learn a lot from our regrets. I think people who say that that dumb line of no regrets, I think you should have all the regrets. Fucking let regrets teach you so much about this life that you either, A, you, you fucking make the mistake again, but you do it a little bit better. And then finally, you stop making that mistake. But that's that's kind of the way I've looked at all these things that I, I've attempted and failed at and failed up. You know, to try to fail up, not fail back, uh, and pivot, 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 find a uh, pivoting. I got everybody loves to use that fucking that stupid show Friends because of that that pivot scene with the couch or whatever. But uh, pivot, like that's they they talk about so much about that in business, but all walks of life have something you can pivot to. Uh, I've I've been pretty fucking lucky that I can I can shift. And learn from one thing. Keep my keep my head moving, if you will. And uh, yeah. So. No, I appreciate that. I really do appreciate that insight. I hope that as you grow your businesses, you get into YouTube. I'm like obsessed with YouTube viewing. And I, something you said earlier, I want to say. There's a thousand people out there who will tell you 
you know, don't share things and watch out with your content. Look at uh, a, a small little school in St. Louis with a black belt who's now world famous as Chu Jitsu. You know, and that guy has an open yeah. source, you know, and then yeah. uh, one of the people runs Balance, uh, you know, uh, Animal Black Belt. Has some of the best videos. Dude, Rick. Period. I, I, I love Rick's stuff because Rick's stuff is so like, uh, yeah, Rick can do that. <laughs> he has all, all the stuff that Rick can do. It's like, go ahead, take his content. He can do it. <laughs> he but taught yeah. a he taught a very cool uh actually at Martinez MMA a week before COVID came and fucked everything up. There was a benefit for Steve from Fight Factory. Yeah, and there was yeah, like yeah, sixteen yeah. black belts, and I and it was amazing, but almost I remember this. It was actually too much because there were yeah. so many black belts. But something Rick taught about how to trap the arm in a triangle scenario. So instead of shooting your hips directly over into the full leg figure four head thing, he's like, "Don't you don't have to shoot for a hundred percent. Trap the arm, get reset, and then go for the whole damn go thing." For the whole thing, yeah. And I can't tell you how many times since he said that that I, it's been a uh, thing. So that's another guy who, you know, he could probably have a whole business as a paywall, just his techniques, but he always gives it out for free. Oh, yeah. And nah, he, yeah. Nah, his, his, his videos are great. Thank you for being on the show. I, I really, your story is so awesome. And I appreciate getting to know you better through the years. And then to hear some of these stories, it, it, this is great. And I know that people will find a lot from this. Thank and you for having me. This was really fun. I was, I'm not gonna lie. I was looking forward to this the whole time. I was like, I was like, man, this is gonna be awesome. I have no fucking idea what we're going to talk about, but it's probably going to be a lot. <laughs> no, I, I knew we talked for a long time and I, I, I'm not only impressed and inspired, but I'm just happy how joyful you are as you tell this story, man. And for, we don't do video, but you've had a big smile on your face the whole time. And it just made this, it's made this three hours go by so fast and just yeah. thank you, man, for being on the show, dude. Sincerely. All right. Thanks, man. I really hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. Rob had one of the biggest smiles I think I've ever seen the entire time during the conversation, and it was actually kind of like a bum out to get to the end. You can support him on the internet. He has his Get Wrecked Fitness, which is available on Instagram. We are going to have all his links actually up on the TIHC podcast page. I say it every episode, but it's important to remind you that every episode has special links and pictures that we just put on our page just for easy source for you guys. I really look forward to getting down there and training at Baltimore BJJ when all this COVID ends and seeing Rob. Next week is a guest that may or may not be known. He has been brought up a handful of times. Juicy Joel Murphy. Joel Murphy is known as the singer of Clenched Fist but more importantly has had such a cool impact on so many of our friends' lives. He is one of my best friends and one of my longest-running hardcore friends. Having first met him over 20 years ago, Juice is the director of all propaganda for This Is Hardcore. The fancy logo, the This Is Hardcore Fest website, in fact, even the podcast stuff. He just did their website again for the Philly Hardcore Show's. 